0: Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Just like you, I am very excited for the up-and-coming fall season. I can't wait for the weather to get a little bit chillier and set the perfect stage for some of these scary stories that we'll have for you. Let's not delay, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My father was a truck driver. This experience shook him to his core. Written by Zach Frost Christmas of 2007 was an event that has always stood out in my mind, and now it's always will. I was 13 at the time, and that was the first and only year that Dad had missed Christmas. He worked as a long-haul truck driver, and we were used to him being gone for weeks or even occasional months at a time. He always made it a point to be home for our birthdays and Christmas, however, but that year it was different. Mom was worried when he said that he had one final load to deliver before the holiday season. His plan was to make his delivery and then be home on the 23rd, just in time for Christmas, but Mother Nature had other ideas. As fate would have it, his route from our home in Minneapolis to Billings, Montana would take him right into the heart of a looming blizzard along I-94. The snow was falling in bunches at the time, and Dad said that he was debating whether or not to pull over for the night in hopes that it would clear up. He decided to try and just keep going, when the road made the decision for him. He was only about an hour away from Billings when his truck struck an unexpected patch of ice, causing him to lose control and slide off the road into the median. Thankfully, he wasn't injured but his truck was wedged in nearly two feet of packed snow. It was around midnight when this had happened. He tried everything that he could think of to get the truck out of the snowdrift, but it was no use. Of course, his phone signal was non-existent as well, so he couldn't even call for assistance. The roads were virtually devoid of any travelers by that point as well. He radioed into a local emergency office, but was told the roads were too hazardous to travel at the moment. In the end, he could do nothing but wait. Meanwhile, Christmas came and went for us, and we didn't hear anything from Dad. Mom was a nervous wreck, although she tried to hide it, while me and my two sisters were just sad that he wasn't there with us. Thankfully, Dad finally called late on Christmas evening. He apologized profusely for not being with us, and promised that he would get home as soon as possible. We did just that two days later, and we were relieved to have him back. He returned with a bundle of late Christmas gifts, and all was well once more. But Dad was different, though. He was quiet and appeared as though his mind was focused elsewhere. I didn't question him on it, but I could tell that something was troubling him. Life went on, and Dad never missed another Christmas after that. He, in fact, just began taking the entire month of December off to prevent anything like that ever happening again. I didn't know this at the time, but later he told me that he never drove down I-94 again. He outright refused deliveries that took him along that stretch, and he would take detours that added multiple hours to his trip if it meant avoiding that spot. Us kids are all grown up now with kids of our own, My son just turned two and our whole family was once again together over this previous Christmas. We sat around watching his mom and dad lovingly spoiled their grandchildren with goodies. I don't think that I'd ever seen my dad with such a beaming smile. Later that night when the sugar rush had finally worn off and the kids had gone to bed, dad and I were left alone on the balcony. We sipped some of his whiskey and puffed on cigars as we got to talking. I'll skip over the bulk of what we talked about, because that's not really why I'm here. Eventually, we started talking about his newfound retirement from truck driving, and I asked him a question which I had never really asked before. You ever really experienced anything creepy out on the road? Dad was no stranger to talking about his experiences. He had infamous tales of him getting mobbed by crackheads in Atlanta, Hitting a cow in Nebraska and the things he saw while driving through Ferguson a few years back during the civil unrest. He was never shy to tell them, but this time, he had paused. He switched the whiskey around his glass for a moment, as if silently debating whether he wanted to tell me. I guess I might as well tell you now. He downed the remainder of his drink and clasped his hands in front of him. You remember that year that I missed Christmas? By this point, I had almost entirely forgotten about it, but when he said that, a torrent of memories came spiraling back. Yeah, mom was pissed, I replied, and dad gave a hearty chuckle at that and nodded. Oh yeah, she never let me forget it. That was that crazy blizzard, right, when your truck got stuck, dad nodded. Yep, dang near flipped my rig that night. Ironically, the snowdrift probably saved my life just as much as it screwed me over. He then paused and broke eye contact as he contemplated his wording. That wasn't the scary part, though. Dad explained that the area that he went off the road was essentially a barren wasteland. No cities or gas stations around him. Just a winding expanse of road in both directions between dozens of foothills. He again mentioned that he had no cell reception. And wasn't sure what to do aside from just to wait for somebody to pass by. After a few minutes, it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. The snow fell in buckets that night, and before long, it nearly reached the bottom of his door. Dad's truck at the time was a Cascadia 125 mid roof sleeper. He had a full sleeping compartment behind the front seat, and provisions to last him a few weeks if necessary. He wasn't too worried about being stranded at least. Well, not at first. After giving up on getting his phone to work, he crawled into the bunk area of the cab and popped a DVD in his portable TV. He figured that he may be stuck out there for at least the night, so he might as well just relax until help arrived. He made sure to insist that if he wanted to, he probably could have figured out a way to get his truck out if he really tried. But he was exhausted and decided to just get some sleep. He said that he drifted off not too long after, only to awake sometime later to complete darkness. The temperature had plummeted and he instinctually hugged his arms and felt the goosebumps align in his arms. He had left his truck idling before he fell asleep, but it wasn't running anymore. Confused, he crawled into the front seat to find the keys still in the ignition. He twisted the key and the engine soon rumbled back to life, but something was wrong. He said the noise of the engine morphed into a gurgling, clangling mess of metal and fluid that produced a god-awful cacophony. His dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree, displaying just about every single warning light the system had. as steam began to pour from the hood vents, and the distinct smell of boiling coolant filled the air. After letting it run for maybe 10 seconds, he shut it off in fear of doing permanent damage to it. He knew that something wasn't right with it, and he sighed as he contemplated going out into the cold night to see if he could figure out what it was. He bundled himself up tight and popped the hood. He said the night had this almost ethereal silence to it as he stepped out of the cab. His feet crunched in the snow, echoing like crashing thunder when compared to the pervasive silence. He made his way around the front and he opened it up, releasing a plume of steam from within. After it dissipated a bit, he leaned in and found something which made him quite confused. The oil and coolant was splashed all over the underside of the hood, with many other parts of the engine covered in gunk as well. Dad climbed off the grill and glanced underneath the carriage, and that's when he found something truly odd. The oil pan was shredded on the bottom of the engine. He said it looked as though somebody had chopped it with an axe a couple dozen times. The oil had all spilled out into the snow beneath. Clearly that was why the engine had been running so rough, but explaining how it happened was another matter entirely. He checked around the area and said that it seemed like some of the oil was dripped away from the road and towards the trees. He looked closer and spied what very much seemed like footprints that accompanied them. As if the winter night wasn't cold enough, that discovery really tanked his blood temperature. Me quickly headed back towards his cab, but as he reached for the handle, something stopped him dead in his tracks. Something moved behind the end of his trailer, too quick to make out any physical details. It moved on two legs and was clearly no animal. Dad just froze, his fight-or-flight instincts seeming to stalemate within him. He thought about calling out but said that it didn't seem like a good idea. After a few seconds of silence, he made a mad dash to his cab and locked the doors behind him. After grabbing the pistol from underneath the seat, he hopped into the rear with his heart racing. He positioned himself where he was able to glance out at both the side mirrors but saw no sign of whoever was behind the trailer. The radio too was out and after trying in vain to get it to work, he sat back. It didn't make any sense to him. Even if the engine wouldn't fire up, the battery should have had enough reserve charge to power the radio for a little while. He tried calling on his cell phone too and although managed to get it to ring a few times, it would always cut out. Hours passed and not much of anything happened. He dozed off once or twice but tried his best to stay awake and to wait for the sun to rise. The snow had since stopped and not a single other car had driven by since he had stopped. He figured the pass itself was closed. He hoped that someone would have been by. Sometime later, he heard a noise emanate from outside. It started as a slight thump with another soon following and then another and another. The sounds gradually grew louder and his heart lodged in his throat as it grew nearer. Someone was on his trailer, and he didn't know what to do about it. He clutched his pistol tight, aiming it up towards the roof. Just as he was certain that the person was about to reach the roof of the cab, the sound stopped. He waited there, pistol trembling in his grip for them to emerge, but they never did. Minutes turned to hours, and he never heard another sound from the roof. He said after a while that he was no longer even sure whether he had heard anything to begin with. Eventually his guard slept, and the drowsiness took over. He doesn't know if this next part is related, but he's never had anything happen like it, so I figured that I would include it too. He dreamed as he slept there, but it wasn't a normal dream. He said that he remembers walking through a dark forest and viewing it all with incredibly vivid detail. He was completely lucid, and says to this day, almost 30 years later, that it was the most incredibly realistic dream that he's ever had. Even looking back on it, he says it felt so real that it's hard for him to distinguish it from reality. He seemed genuinely disturbed as he told me about it, too. The forest that he was walking through had these massive, looming trees that seemed hundreds of feet tall. Twisted roots surrounded their bases, which sprouted from the ground and twisted all over like the tentacles of the Kraken. He had to dip and duck around them as he moved, going further but not knowing why. As he made his way through, he started hearing this noise like the ticking of a clock. It got louder as he moved, and then sure enough he found the source. A large grandfather clock ticking away in the middle of the bundle of roots. He stopped and stared at it for a moment as it ticked away. The clock's tone reverberated but began to slow. In a few moments, it had began ticking much slower, and the clock itself began to melt. Suddenly, he saw things emerging in the distance from behind the trees. Horrible, twisted creatures like the spawns from below. The sounds of cackling and snarling swirled around him and he began to run. He hurtled and leapt through the roots but didn't make it far. Something had struck him hard from behind, knocking him onto his chest. He then awoke with a gasp, panting heavily with a cold sweat permeating his entire body. He scrambled to a seated position while on the brink of panic. His heart was throbbing so fast and hard that it ate. He took a moment to compose himself, and the immense relief that overcame him was one of sheer relief but mint and last. Something moved at his window and his eyes shut up, and there he saw the face staring back at him. He froze, as stiff as a corpse and cold as a glacier. Time seemed to stand still then, but finally he found the strength to raise his pistol. He fired without really even thinking. A loud bang reverberated in and the muzzle flare momentarily disoriented him. He looked up to see a bullet hole in the window, and no sign of the face. After waiting there a few minutes, he ventured to the driver's seat and peered out, but there was nothing there. No sign of that thing ever being there. It didn't make sense to him, as he was certain that he had saw it. What made even less sense was the fact that his phone read that it was only 12.13 a.m. Last time he remembered checking his phone it read at 12.08 at a.m., He swears on everything that he had to have been at least an hour before he had dozed off. By this point in his story, I had to question myself on whether he was pulling my leg. My father's a bit of a prankster for sure, but he's never weaved an elaborate story like this before. He then spent some time glancing around out the windows and ensuring that no one else was around. He almost thought that he should just leave his truck and start walking back to town but obviously that was an incredibly dangerous notion that probably would have gotten him killed. He stared at his phone for quite a while, watching the minute slowly tick onward too slowly. He swore that time wasn't working as normal. Several times he counted aloud to 60 doing his best to approximate a minute, but the minute didn't change accordingly. He eventually just kept counting upwards, finding the minute finally changed when he had reached 386. You would think that after all these worrying discoveries that sleep would have been the last thing that he wanted, but it wasn't enough to prevent. He said that he tried adamantly to resist the urge, but the drowsiness that overtook him was impossible to fight. He found himself walking in the snow, listening as it crunched beneath his feet. A dark and silent forest surrounded him in all directions. It was robotic as if his body acted on its own accord, while his mind drifted in the doldrums. He could barely see where he was going, but it didn't seem to matter. Suddenly it stopped, and it seemed to spring back to reality. He glanced around side to side, a sudden terror gripping him. Where was he, and why was he outside of his truck? He wondered. He spun back, but he couldn't even see the road behind him. The cold sunk into him, and then he saw it. From further in the woods, a familiar face stared back, pale, gaunt, and inhuman. It crawled on all fours, shimmering and shifting side to side. My father turned the complete other way and ran like crazy. Tree branches raked against him as he fled half-blind away from the thing in the woods. Nothing looked familiar, and he just continued running aimlessly through the woods, checking behind him periodically to see if this thing was following him. He never saw it or heard it, but he knew that it was there. Eventually, he smelled the faint scent of smoke lingering in the air. He followed it, hearing a commotion behind him, and soon came across a small clearing. In the center of it was a log cabin with a smoke trickling from the chimney. Seeing no other option, he dashed towards it and knock on the door. And behind him, he could hear odd sounds coming from the woods. And thankfully, the door opened a few seconds later. Who are you and what do you want? The voice of an elderly man called from within. Dad turned and saw the barrel of a shotgun aimed at his chest. He slowly raised his hands to convey that he meant no threat. Please, sir, there's... He said as he paused as he thought that certainly this man was going to think that he was some lunatic. But he said it anyways. There's something out there. The man's furious glance reverted to one of intrigue. He then looked past my dad and out into the forest, his eyes suddenly growing wide. Suddenly he backed up, still aiming the shock at my dad while waving him aside. He pointed him over to a chair in the corner. Dad complied and said as the man locked up behind him. He waited there a couple seconds but apparently heard nothing of concern. "'What are you doing out there?' My dad then told him what had happened with his truck and the blizzard." He told him about the odd occurrences that had happened later on, which culminated him in suddenly waking up walking through the woods. The man sighed and finally lowered his shotgun. He got my dad some water and took a seat across from him. A lot of weird things in these woods. Dad paused as he waited for the man to continue. The man formally introduced himself as Duncan and said his family had owned that plot of land for nearly 100 years. He said that he lost count of how many search parties had come through over the years, as well as thrill-seekers, ghost-hunters, and generally odd people. I saw a face. Dad finally confessed to him. Duncan eyed him curiously. What kind of face? Dad described it much as he had before, and Duncan just shook his head. Well, that's a new one. He let out a sarcastic chuckle then. You hear all kinds of stories, UFOs, Bigfoot, calls, but none of them can ever provide proof. So you don't believe in any of it? My dad asked, only to be countered by Duncan. Of course I do. I've lived out here long enough to know that we humans do not dictate these woods. There are things that lurk in shadows all over the globe, and we may never understand them. But as for what you saw... He paused for a moment, seeming to contemplate as he folded his hands on his lap. There's a group of Native Americans that are rumored to have once lived here. The Applecarry, Ever hear of them? Dad shook his head. Neither had I, but a friend of mine who has since passed told me about him. He was an Aperho man himself, and then said that for generations his people had told tales of the Applecarry. Most other groups feared him said the things they did were evil, more so than the standard tribal warfare one would expect. People say they held these rituals and experiments, and were rumored that their cruelty was matched only by their intellects. Some people say that they weren't even human, but that's neither here nor there. Duncan trailed off once more, taking a sip of tea from a side table One of the rumors that many people attribute to the apple carry is that of the wrong ones. A lot of names for them really, not rights, liars, and uncannies. Things that look human but ain't, and some look less human than others. Long faces, wide mouths, huge eyes, a lot of variations. Some say they can affect time and space itself, and others blame them for a lot of weird disappearances. He paused and took another sip and then chuckled. I can't speak to the validity of all that first hand, but things for certain. There are a lot of weird disappearances, and no one seems to have an answer for them. The air from the room seemed to deflate from his torso, and Dad eyed at the curious man. He had clearly seen a lot over his time, but Dad didn't know how much of his tales to believe. He still doesn't. If all these things are happening, then why do you live out here? Dad finally asked. Duncan reclined in the seat and thought. Dad expected an answer related to his inherited property, but the reality was a bit different. He did in fact mention his ancestral home being a part of it, but he had more to say. If I was twenty years younger, maybe I would leave, but I don't think it would matter. They're in a place on earth you could run to if they wanted to get you. Dad said a shiver descended his spine then, and Duncan didn't seem boastful or wild as he spoke, but more as though his realization was just a foregone conclusion. Thankfully, Duncan allowed my dad to stay the night, and in the morning the two of them made their way back to the road. Luckily, Duncan had a big Dodge diesel that was able to plow through the snow with relative ease. They soon reached my dad's abandoned rig, finding it in an even worse state than he had last seen it the previous night. Multiple tires were slashed, windows were broken, and the engine was absolutely shredded from the bottom. After looking around, though, he found nothing had actually been stolen. And Duncan gave him a ride into town and got his truck towed, and a week or so later, he was finally headed home. So, do you believe in that kind of stuff? I finally asked him after he seemed to be done retelling his story. Well, I'd be kind of stupid not to know. He and I both laughed at that, but clearly, he had had more that he had wanted to say. It was a really weird experience, for sure. But I've always thought that maybe I misremembered it or subconsciously exaggerated it in my mind. Something about it, though, was just so haunting. Like I saw something that night that I really wasn't supposed to see... And never want to see again. He just sat there for a moment in silence and I figured it best to not ask him any more questions. He eventually told me that between the time of him crashing his truck to when he finally made it into town with Duncan, that three entire days had passed. He still doesn't know how to account for that, and apparently Duncan didn't either. There's a lot of unanswered questions to this that he may never get the answer to now. He kept in touch with Duncan over the years, but unfortunately, he passed away back in 2019. I love my dad, and it's disconcerting seeing him that way, you know, confused and terrified. I cannot completely attest to the validity of his story, but I believe him. For many who read this, I'm sure it'll just amount to words on a paper or maybe a fictitious story that entertain you for a few minutes. But to me, it's a horrific possibility at the very least. If anybody has experiences like this or theories, then feel free to share them. Whatever the case, you won't catch me anywhere near I-94 in billions anytime soon. I Think Something is wearing the Skin of the Clerk at My Local Store Written by Eats Daily okay so this thing started a few months ago for a bit of context while i do live in a fairly big city the neighborhood that i live in is quite small and close-knit so everybody knows each other my local corner store is owned by a middle-aged couple it's a pretty sad looking small place but it does good business and it's conveniently close to a lot of people the couple run the counter themselves in shifts up seven hours from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. That was until about six months ago, when the store began operating at 24 hours a day, with someone else taking the night shifts. Now I didn't actually know this was even a thing until a few weeks ago. Being a digital artist, I work from home and I'm on my own schedule, so I'll go days without interacting with people at a time when I'm busy working on a project. I usually work at night too, as the silence helps me concentrate. It was during one of those sleepless nights of staring at a bright monitor, as it burns my eyes that I found out that I ran out of soda, which was a big no. So I got dressed up, and went down the stairwell to my apartment building, and I went to get more. Being about 2 in the morning, I thought that my local store was closed up, so I was going to take a 15 minute walk through the chilly night breeze. To get another one that's open 24-7. That was until I walked past it and saw that the lights were still turned on. The sign on the front door reading, Open. Guess this is a thing, huh? I thought to myself as I changed directions and I walked into the store. Like I said, since this is a small neighborhood, I expected the guy at the counter to be someone from around here, or perhaps one of the owner's older sons. That's why I was surprised to find the man slouching over the counter was a complete stranger that I had never seen before. The employee badge on his clearly not fitting checkered shirt reading Jeremy. The first thing I noticed about this Jeremy guy was that he was huge. Having to bend over what seemed to be an awkward angle to rest his elbows on a counter that comes up to my chest. Medium length, greasy black hair falling over his face and covering his eyes completely. It made sense to me at the time that they would hire such a big guy to work the counter during the night shift, so I didn't think about it at all. With him not reacting to me entering, I simply grabbed myself a medium bottle of Coke and then placed it on the counter next to his arms, which were long and lanky and being closer now, noticeably pale. I pulled out a $10 bill and placed it on the counter to which he gave me this weird nod, as to say that he had acknowledged my presence. I looked at him for a few moments, the sound of his heavy breathing and the fan being the only noises. Uh, the change? I asked, breaking the silence. Huh? Jeremy sort of asked, sort of grunted in a deep, guttural way. You've got to give me the change, man, I told him. Just as confused at his behavior, thinking this guy must be very new to this. Oh, the change, right, right, Jeremy responded, speaking in a weirdly stilted manner, like he simply sounded the words out rather than talk them. He turned his head toward the cash register, and this is when I realized something was seriously wrong, and I seriously wished that I just had never noticed it. Up until this point I would have chalked up his behavior, to him just being some anti social weirdo. But the way that his hand just snapped into place from the counter to the cash register, that was not how humans move. His arm didn't move from left to right naturally, rather, just jerked violently like a bear trap closing. So fast, if I hadn't looked at his arm when he did, that I wouldn't even have noticed it happening. As his large hand fumbled clumsily in the register, my mind began to slowly register what I had just seen. Sweat droplets began forming on my brow as my breathing became just as heavy as his, while I waited until finally he got the money out and placed it haphazardly on the counter. Thanks, have a good one. I managed to say quickly as I picked up the change in the soda. He just did that awkward nod again in response. As I walked out of the door, I looked back one more time, expecting to see... I don't know what I was expecting, but Jeremy was just standing there as before, slouched over the counter, his body only moving from the deep breathing that he took. I walked fast all the way back home, almost sprinting up the staircase of my apartment building, and then once inside, locking the door instantly, I put the soda on my desk, cursing myself for going out to get it, and then sat down on my office chair to catch my breath thinking about what had just happened. What the heck was that? I mumbled to myself, wiping the sweat from my brow. I looked out the window at the store across the street from me. Still open, lights still on. I looked back at the soda, trying to confirm to myself that I didn't just imagine that encounter. There was no way that I could get back to work after that. I just sat absent-mindedly on the computer for a few more hours. I glanced out the window every 20 minutes or so, seeing customers going in and out from time to time. I just went to sleep at about 4am, trying to take my mind off of it. Of course, the next day when I woke up at noon, it was still fresh in my mind. The feeling of dread didn't go away the entire day either, but I just pretended like it didn't bother me. I tried going back to work that night, drowning on my thoughts with it, If I just didn't think about it, then it couldn't affect my life. I could just go back to normal, pretend that it never happened. After all, I could have just been seeing things from lack of sleep the night before. But no matter how much I tried to forget it, the vivid memory of his arm moving akin to a praying mantis, it just wouldn't go away. I couldn't work or sleep soundly anymore, missing out on several commissions because of this. Dread at not leaving me, I had to know what was up with this guy. Not another sleepless night, I decided to look out the window and see if Jeremy or whatever this thing was, would come out when his shift ended. This would confirm that I had just imagined the whole thing. At around 7.45am, Jeremy awkwardly walked out the front doors and locked them. My heart was beating so hard as I watched him do the same violent snappy motions as before. After he locked the doors, he just stumbled down the street until he was out of sight. Well, not stumbled. His body simply moved erratically, the top of his body jerking up and down as his legs carried him forward. It was like watching a marionette move. After a while, one of the owners, the husband, showed up and started a shift. I just slumped back into my office chair, head in my hands. Seeing that made the situation even worse. I just wanted to throw up after seeing that, but I had to compose myself. I wasn't crazy, I knew that much. So therefore, there had to be a logical answer to this. That's just how the world works. I would find out just what is wrong with this guy and then my life would go back to normal. And maybe this would make for a funny story to tell in the future. But I had to find out first. Two days later, on another sleepless night, I had enough. I got dressed up, went down the stairs of my apartment building, went outside and then got behind some bushes across the street from the store. And then I just watched Jeremy through the front doors. The nervousness that I felt just turned into plain unease as he just stood there, slouched over the counter like the first time that I saw him. He wasn't watching the TV, he wasn't on his phone, he wasn't even sitting down, just standing there looking at absolutely nothing. He might have thought that he was uh, just sleeping while standing up, if it wasn't for the occasional wheezes and coughs that caused his body to shake. As strange and unsettling as that was, he wasn't doing anything incriminatory or well inhuman. As then I went on, there was nothing out of the ordinary. He interacted with a few customers and even got up to sweep the floors two times, but in that same broken movement, it didn't make any sense. If this guy was actually a monster, what did he have to gain out of working a menial job? Why would he keep the facade up when no one was looking? Eventually, at 7.45am, he just locked the shop and left, like he had two nights ago when I had watched him. I didn't follow him and I just went back home to think that it was over. As I sat in my office chair once again, I thought that maybe I really was overreacting. I thought that maybe the guy was just handicapped and that I was being mean for stalking him and making up these wild theories in my head. After all, none of the other customers seemed to notice that there was something wrong with them or be bothered by it. I wanted to believe that, and in hindsight, I should have just believed that, but instead I decided that I was going to ask about him to just find out anything. I woke up at noon the next day and I went to the store. One of the owners, the husband, was sitting outside and smoking while the wife had worked the register. He looked up at me and nodded with a smile on his face as I approached him. Nay, man, long time no see. He greeted me and we shook hands. You want to smoke? Yes, but I waved it off. I know, right? I asked sarcastically. I've been busy with some projects, so I've only been up at night the past week or so. I said hoping that he brings up the new schedule of the store. His eyes brightened up a bit. Oh, you didn't know. We're open at night now, too. So if you need anything you can come by. He said before putting the cigarette back in his mouth to take in another breath. Oh, really now? You're working the counter at nights, too. I asked dryly, knowing the answer already. Oh, no, I hired this one kid, his name's Jeremy. You don't know him, he's from another part of town, he explained, waving the cigarette in his hand as he talked, leaving trails of smoke. Really? I asked incredulously. As he nodded, and I leaned back against the wall to make myself comfortable. We made some small talk afterwards. I wasn't really listening to any of it though. I was just trying to make it look like a casual conversation. So what about this Jeremy kid, what am I in for when I meet him? I asked a bit out of nowhere. He seemed surprised by the question but then relaxed again and puffed out some more smoke. Uh, Now I don't know him very well, I haven't spoken to him much since I had hired him, but he's all polite and friendly. And he has a good sense of humor, too. Very dark, though. I think you'll like the guy, he explained. Well, that certainly sounded different from the Jeremy that I met. A dark sense of humor? I asked, intrigued. Yeah, he laughed. You couldn't even tell by looking at the guy with his bright face and slicked back hair. He just looks too friendly, he explained. Now I knew something was wrong for sure, and I instantly felt a pit in my stomach. The slicked back hair, huh? I just repeated back absentmindedly. He nodded and laughed. There was some more small talk after that, but I couldn't possibly listen to any of it. I went right back home after that feeling sick. The puzzle was finally coming together, but it was forming into an image that I didn't want. I had approached this entire issue from the wrong angle. There was nothing wrong with Jeremy because, while this wasn't Jeremy, it was something pretending to be him, and the thought alone made my skin crawl. I just had to know. I shouldn't have looked into it any further, but I just had to know. One last takeout to see for sure. And so the next night, I was once again in the bushes across the street from the store, a few hours went by and once again, and Jeremy locked up the store and left. This time, I was going to follow him to see where he ended up at. Following him was incredibly easy. He had absolutely no awareness of anything around him. He nearly walked into a lamppost at one point. I was of course still a bit freaked out by his behavior and the quietness of the streets. But I was also filled with a bit of hatred inside of me. Hatred for this guy for making me this scared. That motivated me to follow him. Only a few streets away from the store, he unexpectedly just turned into a dark alley. I watched him as he turned his back to a wall, and then his arms just suddenly bent backwards at the elbows and grabbed onto the brick wall behind him. And then just as fast as that, he started climbing up the wall like that, his limbs moving like that of a spider until he finally reached the top of the building and I lost sight of him. I didn't quite know how to react, to be honest. I mean, how would you? I don't remember the walk home either. The dread only really settled in back home, as I was sitting on my bed, thinking about what I had just seen. There was no going back to ignorance now. I tried going back to not thinking about it again, feeling like the more that I uncovered about this, the more that I would regret it. What followed were a few more restless nights. Missed out on so much work, but I didn't really care. I refused to even look out the window anymore. I had to put an end to this stupid stuff. I couldn't allow it to take over my life like this. And To take my mind off of it, I decided to go over to my girlfriend Sarah's house, who I hadn't spoken to since this entire thing had started. I had neglected my entire life over something so stupid. When she opened the door to her apartment and saw me, she seemed pretty upset. "'Oh, you're still alive, huh?' she asked in a sarcastic voice. "'Listen, I'm sorry,' I started. "'I've been going through a lot lately, but I shouldn't have neglected you. "'I just need someone, okay?' I said in what must have sounded like a pretty pathetic plea. She sighed at this. "'Fine, come in and tell me about it,' she said, waving me inside." I sat down on her couch and started talking, but I didn't tell her about it. Instead, I just made up some crap about how I was depressed and stressed without mentioning the store clerk, or rather the thing pretending to be one. Despite her initial annoyance, she was pretty supportive and happy that I had talked to her about it, told her that I wanted to stay at her place for a while, and she accepted. Things were okay for about a week after that. I relaxed for a bit and started sleeping again. But I didn't entirely forget about it, but I didn't think about it as nearly as much. I think Sarah's presence helped me as well, being supportive of me. Of course, the normalcy that I had found again didn't last for long though. I was watching the TV, a baseball game I think, when something caught my attention. In the first few rows, there was a guy sitting slouched over hair over his face. My heart sank and I had to do a double take but it was real. Every time the camera showed that section of the stands, he was still there. Jeremy? I thought to myself at first, but this wasn't him. The camera was far away and he was hard to make out, but I could see that he had had brown hair that was shorter. The camera caught him getting up to leave as the match had ended, but there it was, the same broken movement that Jeremy had. I looked around me for a bit after that, thinking that I had imagined it. How was it possible? There couldn't be more of these things, right? What are you thinking about so seriously? Asked Sarah, placing her hands on my shoulders. Well, you know, I said and then just shrugged. When she said that, I swear that I heard something in her voice. For only a split second, I could swear that something slipped in her speech. That reminded me of how Jeremy sounded up his words. I squashed the thought. I was only being paranoid. While I could have simply chosen to believe that I had imagined what I saw on television and tech even the entire thing, I couldn't lie to myself. I decided to do what most people do when they have a question. I looked it up online on an old laptop that I had brought to her apartment. Eventually, after browsing through several different sub-forms and paranormal websites, I found one that looked like what I was after. It was just about skin-stealing creatures in particular, nothing specific. Of course, most posts looked like they had been made by people that were insane, talking about how their family members or known ones had been replaced, government conspiracies, reptilians, basically every cliché that is associated ...with the types of people that post on forums like this. I did make an account, however, and I posted only one thread with the title. Did anybody see the baseball game last night? I didn't leave any other details. If someone did watch it and saw the same thing as me, it would confirm it. Half an hour later, I had only gotten two replies from people that were telling me... ...that I was probably on the wrong forum, so I decided to check back later... That whole experience made me even more paranoid. One thread that I read in particular had caused it. The users in that one thread were talking about these skin-stealing things and how they theorized that while younger ones would be easier to spot, the ones that had been in human skins longer could become indistinguishable from real humans. Now there was nothing that could back up that theory or back anything up on that website as it was filled with insane conspiracy theorists but it did unsettle me to think about it. Hey, Sarah, I asked from across the apartment, when's my birthday? Your birthday? She shouted back a bit confused, before thinking for a second. It's on the 25th of May, why? She continued, walking into the room with me. I shrugged my shoulders in response. Although my back was turned to her, I could feel this cold, burning hatred in her look. I thought that I was imagining it but I felt so uncomfortable that I turned around to face her. But when I looked at her face she seemed normal, smiling even. More paranoia maybe. The next morning I was out at a cafe to clear up my mind. I couldn't let the paranoia get to me, and that's all this entire thing was, it had to be. As I was sitting down to drink my coffee and think things over again, out of the corner of my eye I could have sworn that I saw one of the waitress's hands do the exact same snapping motion as she handed a plate of coffee cups to someone. Nearly choking on my coffee, I turned my head to look at her and she noticed me and looked back and gave me a weird knowing smile before going back to whatever she was doing. Did she know what I saw? Did I even see it or was my mind playing tricks on me? A familiar sickness came over me again so I just paid for my coffee and left without finishing it. As I walked back home, I just couldn't shake that sick feeling. It had to be paranoid because I felt like every person was looking at me. That stupid forum messed with my mind so much. It made sense though, right? That once they wore the skins of a human enough, they would be able to learn and pretend to be human. It made sense in my mind at least. I got home and as I opened the door, Sarah was just standing there. It took her two seconds to greet me. Uh, Is there something wrong? She asked, moving out of the way to let me inside. Well, you know, it's whatever, I said, shrugging and pretending to be cool. She seemed concerned, but didn't say anything. I went to the bathroom and washed my face a couple of times to cool down. I looked at myself in the mirror for a while afterwards. I wasn't losing my mind, was I? If you had asked me a week ago if I really saw Jeremy climb up that building... I would tell you that I did see it without a doubt. But now I wasn't so sure. Was I having a psychotic break? Later that evening I went back to that forum to see if I got any other replies. Though by that point I was planning to just try and forget about the entire thing again. As I should have expected by then. The thread was deleted by a moderator for being off topic. I was going to delete my account and forget about it but then I noticed a private message. It was from a user called Mr. White Rabbit 87 I checked out his profile. The account was 10 years old with no pose. The message read, I saw your post. Meet me at the sigil bar tomorrow at 9am. Delete message after you read it. What the heck? I muttered to myself under my breath after reading that. It was probably some lunatic knowing that website. But it did say it wanted to meet in a public place. However so, there was a little danger there. I decided to do as it asked, out of curiosity and I deleted the message. I barely slept that night, as tired as I was mentally. I couldn't stop thinking about who wanted to meet me. I got a cold shiver when, for a second... I considered that it could have been one of those things trying to trap me. I tried squashing the thought, but the sound of my girlfriend's breathing, it unnerved me even further. Where are you going? Sarah asked me, rubbing her eyes as I got out of bed and began dressing early in the morning. Oh, I'm meeting a friend. I replied rather coldly as I got ready to move. At a bar or something? She asked, raising an eyebrow jokingly that took me off guard what i asked and she must have sensed that it bothered me since her smile faded i'm just asking is there anything wrong she continued i shrugged my shoulders and then laughed she must have read the message now it could have just been a lucky guess but something inside of me told me that it wasn't what was she doing looking through my account on such an obscure website I began sweating nervously as I made my way to the bar. Deciding that, it would have to wait for later. I got to the Sigil bar at around 8.45, sat down at a table in the back and ordered a beer for myself, though I didn't touch it. Only about ten minutes later, a man that appeared to be in his forties with short brown hair, stubble on his face that wore sunglasses indoors, walked up from behind me. He looked at me and then nodded and then sat down at the opposite end of the table from me. I'm Mr. Grayson. pleased to meet you. He said, extending his hand out to me, which I shook. I know who you are, I saw your post. He continued in a low, deep tone, his voice like that of a chain smoker. Then who are you? I asked him. He put up a hand to stop my questions and he turned around at the red-haired waitress with bangs who I always thought had a weird look with that haircut. Hey, can I get a mug of beer? He asked her. Whatever works, I'm not going to finish it anyway. He waited until he got his mug and then he took a long, loud sip out of it, before a sighed and looking back at me. I wasn't exactly impatient at this point. The entire experience was weird enough to not be boring as much as unsettling. So, who are you? I asked Mr. Grayson again. I'm with the government, kid. He explained before reaching into his coat for his cigarette and then putting it back in, realizing that it's a bar with a no-smoking rule. "'What branch?' I asked him. "'What?' he asked back, confused. "'Which branch of the government do you work for?' I asked again, this time louder and clearer. "'Listen, kid, do you think I'm going to expose a branch of the government that shouldn't even exist to some random guy this casually?' He replied, smiling slyly. "'Are you going to kill me or something?' I asked jokingly. me. He chuckled dryly. Would I sit down to have a beer with you if I wanted to kill you? Seems like kind of a waste of time, he smiled. There was a bit more awkward silence after that. He drank some more beer and I wanted to take a sip of mine too, but I decided against it. It was like neither of us wanted to start talking about the subject. So, uh, I started. What about the baseball game? I asked a bit more quietly. He sighed. Well, I know those things exist. If that's what you're asking me, you're not crazy. He explained to me. And What does the government plan to do anything about it? I asked more aggressively. Once again, he put out his hand for me to relax. That's why I'm here. We've been trying to for a... Uh... He started scratching his chin. About 20 years ago. I got assigned to this case about ten years ago myself. This situation is more complex than you can think. Can you at least tell me what the heck these things are then? I asked him, calmer this time. He pursed his lips before leaning slightly forward. We believe that what we're dealing with here is a species of parasite like creatures that cannot live in their own bodies and require the skins of humans to survive. He explained with no humor in his voice. Believe, I asked incredulously. Yeah, believe. We haven't exactly been able to catch one yet. These things are hard to find as it is. We've theorized that they make up less than 1% of the world's population, and we only got random anonymous reports to go by when hunting them. He explained again. For some reason, a considerable amount of the reports come from the city, so, are they like skinwalkers, then? I asked, trying to relate it to a concept that I'm familiar with. He pursed his lips. Similar, but not quite. Unlike skinwalkers, these aren't spirits. The skin ceiling in this sense, is literal. It's why they seem so misshapen trying to act like humans, he explained. What's their end game? I asked, starting to feel sick again. Well, he started, sighing. It depends on who you ask. Some of the guys back at the headquarters believe that their only goal is survival. That it's simply a sort of symbiotic relationship of nature. And that we can coexist without worry. Apart from a few thousand that have been killed and had their skin stolen. And the others. I asked, wanting him to go on. You can probably imagine. Conspiracy theories about world domination and replacing humanity taking over all that stuff, he explained. There was some more awkward silence after that as he sipped more of his beer and I thought about what he had told me. Which one do you believe? I asked and he smiled at me. I couldn't say this back at the headquarters, so you're listening to some top secret information right here, he said and then leaned over the table. You know how this case has been going on for a really long time, and we have zero information on any of it. I believe that there are people within our very own government that have been replaced by those things. I'm talking about people that are very high up there. There was a lot to take in. Some random guy who could have been anybody meeting me, claiming that he's a government agent, validating what surely must have been my own mind and making things up. I mean, he had to be lying. I couldn't allow the situation to spiral out of control any further. Do you have any proof for any of this? Like that you're actually a government agent? I asked, confident. Christ, listen, kid. Right now, I could tell you anything from who actually killed Kennedy to classified records about experiments that we ran on the population back in the 60s. Point is, I don't need you to believe me. You're the one who I'm trying to help here. He explained, visibly ticked off. So no proof. I replied back, smugly. He grunted before leaning over the table again. Friday night, a Saudi oil baron is going to die. He's going to be killed, but they'll say that it was an accident, he said coldly. That certainly made me drop my aura of smugness. I shook my head at what I had just heard and I recomposed myself. Okay, so assuming you are who you say you are, why did you contact me? I asked. Because I needed to talk to someone outside of the government for help on this case. You seem like you have some history with those things. He explained, going back to his cool demeanor. So what do you want me to do? I asked. He looked at his watch before answering. Now look, I'm running a bit late here. Basically, if you want to help me, when you see one of those things again, you call me. He said and then he slid a business card to me. Before I could say anything, he cut me off. Oh, and here's the thing. If you know for certain that it's one of those things, do not under any circumstances try to confront it. Who knows what it'll do. It was nice meeting you, he said and then got up to leave. Wait, I said and he turned around to see what I wanted. How do I know you're not one of those things? My Christ, he sighed. You've seen those things, you would know instantly if I was one of them. And besides, he said, lowering his sunglasses to reveal two piercing blue eyes. You see, eyes are the window of the soul. That's why they cover theirs. If you don't trust me, just burn the card and never think about this again. And with that, he left. After he left, I sat at the bar for some ten more minutes. I looked at the business card thumbing him back and forward, and had his name on it with a phone number. Didn't list any workplace, though. I paid for the beer that I didn't even touch and then I went back home, feeling just all around empty inside. Sarah was cooking as I got back and I looked her up and down. She appeared to be ever so slightly taller than I had remembered. When she turned around to look at me, I just shrugged. It couldn't be, right? The next few days after that were just a blur. I was just waiting for Friday to finally come to see if Mr. Grayson was who he actually claimed he was. Of course, I already knew, but I just needed to see. Friday night, I was glued to the TV screen, waiting. It was a just like he said. A very influential oil baron died. Apparently, he had slipped in the bathtub and cracked his head open. Though there were discrepancies about the official narrative, I think I chuckled to myself when I saw that. That beyond it confirmed it, as if I needed any more confirmation than seeing Jeremy climbing up that building with my very own eyes. I knew that I hadn't imagined any of it. I just didn't want to believe it. It was time to do something about it, however. I was going to call Mr. Grayson and tell him about Jeremy. However, what are you laughing about? Asked Sarah from behind me. I smiled and shrugged again and she just shook her head. Hey, when's our anniversary? I asked her out of nowhere. Huh? She asked confused. We met on February 3rd. Why? Just wanted to see if you knew. I replied, staring right into her eyes this time as I said it. She seemed confused but then just shrugged it off. Jeremy would have to wait. There was another one closer to me. Now, I know what he said about eyes being the window to the soul or whatever, but he could have been wrong about that. It's not like they ever caught one to know. The next couple of days, I spent closely examining my girlfriend, watching her every move. I don't think that I got a single full night of sleep during those few days. I closely watched everything she did. I could swear that I was seeing her do movements similar to Jeremy but I couldn't tell that if it was due to the tiredness and it frustrated me to no end. I also kept asking her personal questions that only she would know. Her parents' name and the name of her first dog, the name of my uncle and every time I asked it, it seemed like she got increasingly annoyed. I couldn't tell if it was because the thing thought I was onto it, or if my girlfriend was annoyed at my behavior. It was at that point that the fear that I left from these things started to turn into hatred. The months of that point of confusion and dread and lack of sleep, the paranoia that they made me feel, it was all boiling over. As I sat there on the couch staring at her and grinding my teeth in anger, as I continued to survey her movement, she turned around at me and sighed annoyed. What the heck is your problem? Sarah asked. I've tried to be nice, but please tell me. I want to know why you're like this. Oh, you know why, I responded, gripping the edges of the couch. No, I don't, she replied defensively. I want to know what your problem is so I can help you. She looked at me, and I looked at her for a while. I still couldn't decide if she was actually one of those things or not, but in that moment, I was almost convinced that she was. Well... She asked again impatiently. I had made my choice. I was going to confront it. I know who, I started and then stopped myself. No, no, I know what you are. What? She asked me confused, pretending to be confused. I know that you're not Sarah, I replied simply. Then what the heck do you think I am? She asked annoyed. You're being delusional, she said and I didn't respond. She continued staring at me while I didn't say anything, but I was studying her face the entire time and she, or it, seemed to do the same to me, but I just couldn't tell. Do you think I'm an imposter? She asked again, like a skinwalker or something. Not quite, I replied, leaning back on the couch. That line, it seemed to have triggered something inside of her, and that's when I finally made up my mind. A decision that I would have to live with for the rest of my life. Listen, I'm your girlfriend Sarah, okay? She started, but I wasn't really listening to a word coming out of her mouth. I'm not some made-up creature or monster or whatever. I didn't reply. I just sat back on the couch. My head tilted to the side a bit as I listened to her lie to me. I think you've been listening to too many horror stories or something. Get a grip, please. She laughed, nervously. I still didn't respond. Anything that she would try to tell me were just attempts at deluding me, and I knew it. Oh, come on, don't act like this. She said and reached over to grab my arm, but I recoiled it away. She sighed. Stop being absurd, I'm not going to hurt you. She looked me in the eyes again and waited for me to say something, but I remained quiet. I must have seemed pretty calm, but inside of me, the rage was building up. Every time that I heard this creature try to lie to me using my girlfriend's voice, she potted at me and rolled her eyes. Fine, believe whatever you want, she said and turned around to leave. The moment that she turned around, I got up from the couch and hit her in the back of the head as hard as I could. As her body went limp and collapsed, I grabbed the back of her head and hit her face against the floor a few more times to make sure that she wasn't getting up. I didn't want to give this thing a simple chance i walked over to the kitchen eyes on the body the entire time and i grabbed a knife that i used to cut her throat with black blood spilling out onto the carpeted floor i sat back on the couch after this and breathing heavily as i looked at the body i had such a feeling of pride inside of me for finally doing something about it after months of torment i hated these things so much I stared at the body for a few minutes and part of me almost expecting it to pop back up again but it didn't. The adrenaline started to slowly wash away as I realized that I now had a dead body on my hands and I needed to do something about it. It wouldn't have been far-fetched to imagine that the police were in on this too, so I had to do something about it. I grabbed my wallet and left the apartment, eyeing the body as I walked out the door. It still didn't move. After this, it turns into kind of a blur again. I returned half an hour later with a canister of gasoline that I had bought at a gas station, and I began pouring it all around the apartment. The smell was absolutely intoxicating. Afterwards, I sat in the doorway for a bit, watching the body. It still didn't move. This wasn't quite right. I set the apartment ablaze and walked off. I was hearing fire alarms and people shouting as I walked off into the night with only my wallet and my phone. I checked the wallet and the business card that Mr. Grayson gave me and it was still there. I didn't want to call him on my phone so I walked a few streets until I found a public one and I made the call there. It was pretty late but someone did pick up. Hello, is this Mr. Grayson? I asked. Yeah, that is in fact me. May I ask who I'm talking to? He asked from the other end in that deep, raspy voice. I'm the guy you met at a bar last week. Or was it two weeks ago? I don't remember anymore. I told him. Oh, it's you, huh? He asked. What are you calling me so late for? I killed my girlfriend, I responded. There was silence after this. What? He asked in a quieter tone. Yeah. I killed her and I set the apartment on fire. She's dead for sure. I explained to him. What the heck did you do that for? Mr. Grayson asked in a baffled tone. Was she one of those things? I thought she was in the moment at least. But now I'm not really so sure, I said. Realization kind of washing over me now that I was saying it out loud. Jesus Christ. Meet me outside of the bar in like 15 minutes. We'll talk more there. He said, and closed the phone. I did as he told me and a little while later, a black car showed up and honked me. I walked up to the driver's window to see Mr. Grayson there, still wearing his sunglasses even late at night. Take off your sunglasses, I told him. He sighed in annoyance and lowered them so I could see his eyes. You see, it's me and I'll get in, he said. Once in the car, he started driving around and I began explaining to him. Not just what had happened with my girlfriend, but the entire thing, and how it had all started with meeting Jeremy. So, are you sure your girlfriend was actually one of those things? He asked after I told him all that. I don't know. I was sure that she was one, but now I'm like 80% sure she was. I really don't know, man. I explained to him and he nodded. You should have called me, but it's fine, he sighed. He drove in silence for about 15 minutes before I stopped in front of a cheap motel next to a red pickup truck. He pulled out his wallet and handed me $50. Stay here until this blows over, I'll call you to update you. Try not to leave this place unless absolutely necessary, he explained. And what are you going to do? I asked him. I'll look into this Jeremy guy then we'll figure out what to do next, he told me. And what about my girlfriend? I asked him. He sighed heavily again. One thing at a time. We'll figure something out, don't worry, he said. Next time if you see one of those things, call me first, please. We shook hands and he wished me luck. I did as he asked and I booked a room for the motel. It was a miserably dirty place, but it was also incredibly cheap. I stayed there for a week and then another, not leaving at all. Those days are such a blur. I had so many thoughts and emotions running through my mind. Was that really a monster that I had killed? If so, what had happened to my real girlfriend? How many more of those things were there? Did Mr. Grayson actually have my best interests in mind? And there was barely any sleep in those weeks. I just sat there in the dark and my windows covered up. Every single tapping noise or footsteps that I had heard outside my room sent me into a panic. But one thing I remember was watching the TV a lot to hear about the incident at the apartment. I expected it to be viewed as a brutal murder and that I would be wanted by the cops. But there was absolutely nothing about it. I looked it up online too and there wasn't a single article about it. I knew that something was wrong, well, more than it already was. My city had a low crime rate, so such a violent murder as that one, it would have surely been big news. I waited for another week, with still no news from Mr. Grayson, and still nothing on the TV. I was growing restless, so I decided to do some more investigating, as if that hadn't got me into so much trouble already. I walked back all the way back to her apartment building early in the morning. I expected to get some weird looks coming back there, but none of the residents seemed to pay me any mind. I walked to her apartment and the door was intact, not even any signs of soot. When I tried pushing it open, I found out that it was locked. I hadn't locked it. I thought maybe the police did. I looked around some more until I noticed a janitor was cleaning the hallway, and I decided to ask him about it. Hey, do you know if a woman called Sarah lives here? I asked him, pointing to the door. The man looked at me without raising the visor from his cap. Sarah? He asked me back and I nodded. Oh, she's on vacation right now. Really? I asked him and he nodded back. Visor and his cap, still not revealing his eyes. When did she tell you this? I hadn't heard about it. About a month ago. He mumbled, uninterested. Was this before or after the fire? I asked him and the seemed to stop him in his tracks for just a second. What fire? he asked. There was just the slightest hint of a smirk on his face. I believe there was a common unspoken understanding between me and that thing there. I left without asking him any more questions. Over the next two weeks, I tried getting in contact with Mr. Grayson again, but he wouldn't pick up his phone. I even tried messaging him on that forum again, but it said that his account was deactivated. Once again, I don't really remember much of what happened during that time period. It was all a blur of negativity and confusion. I was just waiting for something to save me from this entire situation. I started watching the TV a lot more to distract myself, but that only made it worse. The thing is, once you realize these things exist, you could just start seeing them everywhere. Always somewhere in the back during a news report, lost in a crowd somewhere. I started doubting Mr. Grayson's theory that it was only 1% of the world population. How could there be so many of these things? Not most of them I couldn't confirm. But you just know for a fact that it's one of those things when you see them. And I could tell, and I knew. It was driving me insane knowing... I'd had enough and died to get out of there. I didn't know where I would go, but I could just not be in that city anymore. Just the day that I was making preparations to leave, I got a phone call from a familiar number. "'Hey, kid, it's me,' the raspy voice said. Almost too raspy. "'Listen, there's been a development in this case. I think we need to meet up to discuss what to do next. How do you have my number?' I never called you from my mobile phone, I told him. That didn't seem to cause him to even miss a beat, though. Christ, I'm with the government, kid. You think we can't figure something out like that? He asked in an annoyed tone. I had to give this thing credit. It was doing a great Mr. Grayson impression. Of course, it was pointless because if he actually was Mr. Grayson, he would have known where I'm at. Meet up Where? I asked, trying to play along, to see what it wants. You choose, but we have to meet today, it's important. The thing pretended to be Mr. Grayson said. How does the center of town sound? I asked the thing, interested to see if it was going to meet me in such an open location. Yeah, sure, I'll drive over there right now. I'll park on Gaines Street. Looking forward to seeing you, kid. It said and closed the phone abruptly. I decided to meet it. I was going to leave town afterwards, but I wanted to see what it wanted first. I should have just left right there and that, but I had to know. After so much suffering and confusion, I had to know. It was a relatively short walk. The entire time I tried to not look at many people if I could help it. I knew that I would feel sick instantly if I saw one of those things. Even then, I still felt their eyes on me. Mr. Grayson's car was parked with the thing said it would be, and the thing pretending to be him was in the car. He motioned over for me to come up to the window, which I did. Listen, kid, the thing started in that condescending tone that Mr. Grayson had. I've looked into this entire thing deeper, and I think you've overblown it out of proportions. That Jeremy kid that you told me about, he's not one of those things. He just has some neurological disease or something. You can go ask him yourself and see. You wasted my time with that goose chase. I didn't even respond to anything that he just said. I just stared at him, hatred seething through my body, as I watched this thing blatantly lie to me. I let him continue to see what other things it would conjure up. Your girlfriend, she's not one of those things either. She thinks that you're having some sort of mental breakdown right now, and honestly, I think I believe her. This entire thing seems to have taken a toll on you, kid. I just don't think that you're cut out for it. Just hand me back my business card and go home and forget about this entire thing. It explained as I had to try my hardest to hold back laughter. My girlfriend is dead. I reminded the thing. Once again, it didn't miss a beat. No, she's not. I talked to her just this morning. I can drive you to her apartment right now to meet her. It's sad, trying very hard to convince me of this. How could you have talked to my girlfriend when I had killed her? I remind it once again, but it just wouldn't accept it. That's another thing you imagined. Like the kid at the baseball game or Jeremy walking up that building. Or whatever the heck you told me happened. Your girlfriend told me that you suffer from psychosis. I think that's what might have caused this entire thing. It continued a lie to me. The confidence with which it had lied to me just made me hate it so much more. It would have been pointless to argue with this thing. It would have just continued claiming that I was insane. Heck, it might have even convinced me eventually. The last couple months of my life were just a blur in my mind after all. But there was one thing. While it did do an almost perfect impression of Mr. Grayson, there was one thing it couldn't actually mimic. Take off your sunglasses. I told it. I could see the thing instantly freeze up when confronted with something that it couldn't fake. What? The thing asked, confused. I simply turned around and walked away from the car afterwards. I heard it calling me to come back and when I heard the door of the car open, I started sprinting away. I walked fast all the way back to my crappy motel room to pick up some stuff before leaving town. But when I got there, I noticed a red pickup truck parked right outside of my room. There was a tall man with long dirty blonde hair peering into my window, shoulders slouched. The tapping noises, that's what had caused it. I decided that what was in that room wasn't important anymore and turned around and left. I had to walk through the city aimlessly for a bit. Thousands of thoughts running through my mind, wondering what to do next. I had to get out of the city, but how? A bus would have been my best option, the one out of town left in a few hours. I had to kill some time and you wouldn't believe how slow time passes when you were as stressed as I was. I didn't know how much of this was paranoia, but I couldn't shake the feeling of eyes on me. A burning inhuman hatred being directed at me from several directions every time I was near a crowd of people. I didn't have the mental energy to check to see how many of those things were surrounding me at any given time. I decided to sit down on a bench on the side of the road to relax for a bit, but after a few minutes the red pickup truck stopped right in front of me, with the same long blonde haired guy inside of it just sitting there. I got up and sprinted away, I was so exhausted by the entire thing. After some more walking by chance I ended up at the sigil bar again, I figured that I might as well be somewhere inside. Even if there was more of those things there, at least the bar was dimly lit enough that I wouldn't know and that was better. I sat there at a table near the back, catching my breath, my head in my hands. The red-haired waitress with bangs walked up to me to take my order. She returned with a mug of beer a few minutes later. "'Will there be anything else, sir?' she said. I looked at her when she said that. I realized why I thought her bangs looked weird. Well, because they covered her eyes. Of course, those things knew everything. They had listened to the entire conversation me and Mr. Grayson had had about them. Who knows for how long they had been monitoring me. The thing pretending to be the waitress smiled at me. There was such a sense of a smug self-satisfaction on its face. It knew that I knew. I looked around the dimly lit room for a bit. There were about four or five of those things that I could see that had been staring at me the entire time and I just hadn't noticed it because I was lost in my thoughts. They all knew that I knew. Are you alright sir? The thing pretending to be the waitress asked. It was mocking me. These weren't just dumb parasites with an animalistic drive to survive. These were intelligent creatures that seemed to take great joy in messing with me. I had had a knob. I picked up the beer mug off the table and I slammed it in the waitress's face. Shards of glass and blood flying everywhere as it shattered. It cut my hand pretty badly too, but I didn't care. I ran out of the bar as fast as I could, and then I just kept running until I eventually collapsed onto my knees on some random street. As I kneeled down on the pavement trying to catch my breath, a car pulled up right next to me. It was the rat a pickup truck. The thing inside just looked at me through the driver's window, not even moving. What the heck do you want? I shouted, getting up from the ground to walk towards it and didn't say anything and just continued staring at me from behind that dirty blonde hair. I opened the door of the car and yanked the thing out. It felt like I was pulling out a scarecrow. It fell to the ground and I stomped on its head a couple of times in anger, but it didn't even bother trying to fight back. Instead, it propped itself into a sitting position and continued staring at me. Screw you, I told it as I got in its car and drove off. It was still there, sitting down as I looked in the rearview window. The entire situation just kept getting worse and worse. I felt like I was going insane. I was going to drive out of town and then just keep driving until I ran out of gas, and then I would never think about what happened here ever again. My phone rang a couple of times, Mr. Grayson's number, but I didn't bother picking it up. We've got a special dedication up next, the voice on the radio said. It's dedicated to the guy in the red pickup truck currently driving on Sawyer Street. Good luck, buddy. I instantly stopped the car, almost causing an accident and I got out of it as every breath you take by the police started playing. I left it on the side of the road and decided that I was going to wait for the bus out of town at the station. It was only about 20 minutes or so away anyway, I probably should have been more freaked out by what had just transpired, but at that point I had been through so much already that it barely fazed me. I sat down on the bench in the bus station, waiting for the bus to show up and free me. It was dark and quiet outside, which normally would be scary, but in this situation, I welcomed not being near anyone. The silence was cut short by my phone buzzing with a message. A message from my girlfriend. Hey, where are you? It's getting pretty late. I'm worried about you. The message read. I chuckled out loud when I read it. A few minutes later, another message, and then another. When I got a phone call from her number, I just threw the phone in a trash can. To be honest, I was scared of hearing her voice, especially knowing that it wasn't hers. I mean, it couldn't be her. After what I did to her, I remembered it crystal clear. I dropped to my knees and cried for a bit in the station after that, and then I laughed for a bit at the absurdity of the situation. And then I cried again some more. Something about that just broke me mentally. I sat on my knees some more and no bus showed up. The phone just continued to ring from the trash can. The bus never showed up. I just wanted to give up right then and there, but I couldn't. I couldn't let those things win. I knew that I wasn't crazy. I don't know if it was the conviction or just a pathetic desperation and nothing else. But I got up. I don't remember the next couple of days, I remember that I decided to leave through the outskirts of the town through the wilderness, but I don't remember anything that happened for a while after that, I think I was just broken mentally, what I do remember is being handcuffed by a pair of cops on the side of a highway around a week later, covered in dirt and bleeding, I remember that I didn't even struggle. I remember spitting in the officer's face as he was reading down my rights, which led to them kicking me while I was on the ground for a bit. I couldn't care less. I was completely lethargic by that point. I remember the arrest took place next to a red pickup truck. Are you arresting me for killing my girlfriend? I asked the officer driving the car. Your girlfriend's fine. She's the one that reported you missing, he told me. I don't think that he was lying. It was probably what he genuinely believed. My girlfriend's dead. That's a thing wearing your skin that told you that. I told him knowing full well that he wouldn't believe me. You've completely lost your mind, haven't you? The officer asked me in a condescending tone. Your colleague next to you was one of those things, too. You can tell because he hasn't taken his sunglasses off. That's the window to the soul, I said, more talking to myself than anything. The officer laughed. ''Is that right, Richard? Are you actually a skin-stealing monster?'' The officer asked, mockingly. ''Yep.'' The thing wearing Richard's skin responded. They both laughed, and I laughed too. ''I spent a few months in a mental hospital afterwards. I listened to countless doctors tell me how apparently I had been diagnosed with psychosis my entire life and I hadn't taken my medication in a few months. Of course, none of that had ever happened.'' I had never even taken a psychological exam in my life before, but it's what my patient sheet said, so I agreed with it. I agreed with everything that the doctors told me, none of those things existed. My girlfriend had been alive the entire time, no Mr. Grayson had ever existed. I just nodded my head and smiled the entire time. When they eventually decided that I wasn't in danger to myself or other people, they released me. I was picked up by my girlfriend Sarah and eventually moved back into the apartment with her and started back on my graphic design job. That's how my life has been since then. It's returned to a superficial sense of normalcy. Now let's get one thing perfectly clear. I'm not crazy. I did kill my girlfriend. I know that this thing that lives with me is just something wearing her skin, but I ignore it. I ignore the feeling of burning hatred that I can feel come from the eyes hidden behind her hair. I ignore it when she sits in the corner of the room at night, staring into nothingness. When she convulses on the couch at the fact that she hasn't spoken one word to me since I met her again. I don't care enough to do anything about it. The things haven't gone away either. If anything, they become even more aggressive now with their expansion. I would say that around half the neighborhood is one of those things right now if I had to guess. There's a kid with hair over his eyes that sits outside in front of my apartment block all day. The old lady downstairs that sits with her face pressed against the window for hours at a time. The other day I saw the mailman bend his body so he could crawl around a pipe on the side of the building. I just ignore all of it. Sometimes when I'm out walking I'll see Mr. Grayson or the thing wearing his skin down at the bar or something. It smiles at me every time that it sees me. This morning, I woke up and walked into the living room, my girlfriend sitting in the corner of the room, staring into nothingness again, and I sighed. Hey, I'm going to the store. You need anything?' I asked my girlfriend, Sarah. Her body just convulsed wildly. I think that was enough. It was around 7 in the morning, so it was early enough for what I had in mind. I walked to the store where this entire thing had started— It felt like a lifetime ago by then. Jeremy was at the counter still slouched over and breathing heavily. His long greasy black hair down to his shoulders by now. Sweaty from the summer heat and stuck to his face and neck like black tentacles. I put a bottle of coke on the counter but that's not why I was there. And he seemed to know it too because he slightly raised his head to get a better look at me. He nodded as if to acknowledge my presence ''You know that I know what you are, right?'' I asked. Jeremy nodded his head in that disgusting, inhuman fashion. ''So?'' Jeremy muttered in that voice that almost sounded human, but not quite. I shrugged, I laughed. Jeremy smiled at me with a snake-like smile, and I laughed some more. I don't know why it was so funny to me, but I couldn't really stop laughing. He was right, so what?'' I'm surrounded by skin-stealing monsters and I know this and I can't do anything about it. It was so funny, so absurd. It's like I'm an insect struggling inside the mouth of a Venus flytrap. I laughed all the way back home. I laughed as I entered my apartment, my girlfriend Sarah still shaking in the corner of the room. I laughed as I sat down on the couch and turned on the television and watched a world leader give a speech. His shoulders slouched, hair over his eyes. I worked on a classified military project called The Afterlife Experiment, written by Phantom Dragon. For all security reasons, I wish to remain anonymous. So for now, you can call me John Doe. I'm here to tell you of my experience into the afterlife, an experience that I wish I haven't undergone, along with two of my former colleagues. God bless their souls, and I hope like crazy that they get out of that miserable place. I suppose that it was my fault their souls are now trapped in there, with those hideous things inside of it. I can only pray with my good faith that they receive salvation. Some of you may be wondering, what was the afterlife like? What was I doing in there? Well, this was something that was meant to be an experiment to see if our existence could transcend the notion of physical reality and into what some people call heaven, whatever, purgatory or what some people refer to as the astral plane or more specifically, the afterlife. But before I begin, I'll introduce myself with my background. As I said, you can call me John Doe, as I refuse to use my name for security purposes. My former colleagues, who I'll call Jane Doe and Jack Doe, were two of the best-known people that I'd ever worked with for over 20 years. They're gone now, and I blame myself for it. It's been about five years since I left the facility without saying a word about the incident, but I believe now is the time to talk about my experience. I won't give you every detail of my experience, so I'll provide you with the most important parts. This all began when we were working together along with 37 other people in a top-secret military facility that deals with things that humans normally pass off as superstition. Things like UFOs, ghosts, angels, demons, and other mythical creatures and things talked about. We captured very interesting evidence of some of this phenomena, particularly ghosts and UFOs. We even managed to capture the first crystal-clear image of a skinwalker, thanks to one of our top-secret hidden cameras in a forest that the Native Americans said was haunted by said entities. The creature looked terrifying, but that was nothing compared to what my colleagues and I had experienced during our time in the afterlife. And two weeks had passed at that time, Before it was decided that it was not enough to just get clear, irrefutable photos and recordings of such things. So what if someone alive enters into that unknown realm? That was the question one of our superiors had asked. It was then decided that we should see what it was like, on the other side, the afterlife. A couple of scientists working in our facility introduced a new form of technology that allows one to go into the afterlife. It was a machine with a bed strapped to it and it had three tubes with needles at the end of each of them. I didn't know their names at the time. One of the scientists explained that one of these tubes hooked up to the machine. It injects an unknown poison which is capable of killing a person in a matter of seconds without feeling pain, while another tube injects this unknown liquid which helps neutralize the poison. The third tube injects another unknown liquid that can help revive a person in a matter of seconds. They didn't say what this machine and the liquids are, as they said it's top secret and the machine is one of three prototypes. I suppose they planned for this moment and just like that, I along with my two aforementioned colleagues were selected to take part in this experiment. I was reluctant at first, scared in fact. I was hesitant to say yes. One of the scientists who was working on the machine told us two things. One, the machine is guaranteed to work, as they have tested themselves and everything is working fine. Two, if one of us refused, we'd be serving time in a military prison, and we'll be worse off in there than we would be in the afterlife. Fine, I said. I didn't like the idea of being put in such a military prison, let alone putting my fellow colleagues in that situation too. So I reluctantly agreed, It as did my two colleagues, Jane and Jack. We all laid in the beds, strapped to the machines, and the scientists then inserted the tubes into our bodies. Luckily, they injected a numbing medication before they put it in. It would hurt like crazy if it didn't. We all tried our best to stay calm, while the scientists began activating the machines. After a couple of minutes, the machines were ready and the scientists gave us one last question. Keep in mind, I said this works, but I also said this is still a prototype, so there's a very slim chance that you might never come back from this. You got 15 minutes, do you have any last words before we begin? Yeah, if I don't ever make it back, please tell my wife and children that I love them. I sat in with the chance that I might never come back from this. Jane felt the same way and wishes that her husband and children hear the same words, jack though didn't have anyone on the other hand i understood that he was a loner and didn't have anyone close to him in his life so he said nothing and the scientist shrugged it off he was still a good guy nevertheless and i respected him along with jane very well the scientist said before activating one of the tubes i noticed the poisonous liquid flowing through the tube before reaching into my body i didn't feel any pain but I felt like my body was slowly becoming paralyzed. Good luck, with the two faint words that I could hear from the doctor's mouth before everything went dark and I could see or hear nothing. Shortly after I could see again and I could see myself floating directly above my body. I turned to look around and I could see Jane and Jack floating as well. Jane looked down and I was surprised to see her own body jack saw his own body but gave no reaction as if he didn't care of course i knew that he was the one who follows orders but he was also the silent type sometimes looking depressed but i guessed that his excellence in combat as well as intelligence gathering brought him into the facility nevertheless i didn't have much time to dwell on his life i looked around and saw the scientists speaking to each other regarding the experiment Looking at one of the scientists, I could hear his words crystal clear, but I could also see his face crystal clear as well. He usually shaves his mustache, but I could still see that he missed a tiny spot that appeared to be invisible to the naked eye. I couldn't even tell that he missed it when I was alive. I held back a laughter nonetheless, and my colleagues and I decided that it's time to leave the facility and see what we can find. I was trying to figure out how to descend... But there was nothing that I could do. And that's when I discovered that as soon as I thought of myself descending down, the thought of it somehow made me descend back down on the floor. Jane and Jack looked surprised and I told them what I did. They followed suit and they were amazed by my discovery. It seems that within the afterlife, your thoughts create the situation or the moment for you. To confirm this, I decided to think that I would be in my child at home and just like that, I was right there. I couldn't explain how I had gotten there so fast. Perhaps it was the speed of thought. My old house was a few thousand miles away from where I was working at. Suddenly Jane appeared behind me followed by Jack. She explained that she thought of being next to me and that it had happened and Jack thought the same thing. This was an interesting discovery and this is something we needed to relay to our superiors once this experiment was over. I turned to look again at my house and I could see that it had been abandoned. No one else had lived in that house for 35 years, ever since my parents had passed. I prayed that they're in heaven or someplace better, and not in that demonic thing operated by those devils. Understanding that we could move where our thoughts would take us, I decided that we should think ourselves a flying forward and we did. As we started flying, I could hear Jack screaming as he seemed like he was about to hit a building. But to his surprise, he phased through it, which prompted a reminder that we don't have our physical bodies, which is why he passed through the solid structure. We gathered as much intel as we could throughout this experience, thinking of places to be at, only to be there instantly as well as manually flying ourselves for the fun of it. We even saw people who had died or who were currently performing what is called astral projection. I began to marvel at the sight of everything in this world along with its beauty. And this is when I had this one idea. The very same idea that I regret having now. I decided what if we went out into space while in the afterlife? What would space be like? Will it be just as beautiful? Jane and Jack had their eyes wide, never thinking such a thing could be possible. But what if there's no air? What if we can't breathe in space? Jack said. Why would you need air when you don't have our bodies? I asked. Come to think of it, the whole time that we were experimenting within the afterlife, we didn't even have a nose or lungs. We all thought of this, but we still appeared to be breathing the same way we did while we were alive. But given that my colleagues were afraid to go up there, I then decided that I should go up into space. I was anxious to think myself being in space, so I decided to fly up ahead and use my thoughts to make myself go up faster and faster. At that moment, I was in space and I could see the moon clearly. It looked more crystal clear, appearing like a ball of rock and sand floating in space. I even looked at the stars and they appeared brighter than they normally look with any telescope or image. Not to mention, I wasn't in any danger, and I was still breathing, apparently. Jane and Jack, though, shortly appeared next to me and they were in shock and awe at what they saw in space. Everything looks beautiful, Jane said before looking at me. I'm going to try to go to Jupiter. I said and decided this time that I'll think myself being there. And shortly after that, I was right there. I could see the planet, and I remarked its beauty. However, shortly after a few moments, that wasn't what caught my attention. As I turned to look to my right, I could see what I presumed to be spacecrafts. I became shocked by the experience. It astounded me to see UFOs flying around, and I was just right there, but how? They're literally flying everywhere in space, even around Jupiter. But our cameras, telescopes, and other forms of technology meant for observing space, they couldn't detect them. I was astonished. None of this made any sense whatsoever. One of the ships approached and the beings inside were seen looking at me. One of the figures in the craft looked like a small, grey being and smiled at me. I would freak out, but strangely, I could feel its energy. It meant no harm to me and it was exploring space, just like me. I was shocked and anxious, but I also had this understanding that it had no malicious intent towards me. And then just like that, the being turned the ship and left to wherever it was going. I was still afraid, but happy that I'm not in trouble. After a few moments from the ordeal, both Jack and Jane appeared behind me. Hey, we're glad you're fine, John. We were starting to get worried if something had happened to you. I could sense some anxiety coming from you," Jack said. "Well something did happen, I saw one of those little gray beans in an aircraft, and it looked at me and smiled at me before taking off," I told them. "I was astonished to see that they laughed and didn't believe me. Nevertheless, I decided to not let it bother me, and we then explored a space shortly after. After looking around, we could see that space was more beautiful than it looked. The stars, the moons, and suns were crystal clear and brighter. Jane and Jack then noticed other spacecrafts not belonging to us and were taken aback. We then had this thought of being next to Voyager 1's location and just like that, it happened. And we could see its technological designs. This thing is huge, Jane said. That's what she said. Jack jokingly stated, and that's when Jane got mad and flipped him off, before we continued on. Now she's never the person to do that, but that's only if you don't get on her bad side or say the wrong things to her. I then decided that besides Jupiter, we should also take a look at the other bigger planets, that being Uranus, Neptune, and of course Saturn. We thought ourselves, being at Uranus and Neptune at first, We could even see the rings around Uranus which would also appear faint to the naked eye, but from our view it was clearly right there. Neptune on the other hand appeared to be a bright blue watery looking planet. Not much had happened at first until we decided that we should now head over to Saturn. As always we would be there instantly with mere thought. The planet looked like it how it appeared in NASA's space images but brighter and clearer, including its massive rings. After what felt like a few minutes of observing the spectacles of the planet, I looked toward Jack only to see a figure approaching behind him. I pointed right behind him and he and Jane turned to see it. The entity looked human like us, a female but having Nordic features. We spoke to the entity and she didn't respond. She only stared at us. I could sense a fearing anxiety coming from Jack as he believed that this entity wasn't from our world and that it might harm us. This drew the attention of the entity, and she began to back slightly away from him. As soon as she saw me, I had to calm myself down and give her a smile, having no hostile or fearful emotions, but emotions filled with peace and harmony, to show that I'm not a threat to the entity. As I did this, the entity turned its attention to me and slowly approached us, She then smiled at me and she took out her hand. I could feel from her as if she wanted me to touch it. And just like that I did. And I felt her energy. It was peaceful and I felt that she's from an unseen world hundreds of light years from Earth. To my surprise she didn't have a name. And they don't use names to identify individuals among their own. I even felt the knowledge that she had imbued within me especially the knowledge on how she astral projects and the knowledge of the astral plane itself. She clearly had a much higher level of understanding of the afterlife than we did and how to navigate it properly. I was even embedded with the knowledge of things humanity still is yet to understand. I could also feel that she was happy to meet me, as I was to her, given that we mean no harm to each other. Unfortunately, the ordeal didn't last long, and this is when things took a very dark turn. As she looked at my fellow colleagues for a few moments before turning back at me, she then frowned and looked terrified, red right before flying quickly away from us. I wondered what freaked her out. I meant no harm to her, and that's when Jack turned my attention, and his eyes went wide with fear. That was when I realized something. They weren't looking at me. Jack pointed at something behind me. I turned into my horror there was this black, pyramid-looking structure heading towards our location. It appeared to be coming from the planet. I could see the beings piloting the craft. One of them looked like a taller gray one, but it wasn't smiling at us and I could sense its energy. It had this feeling of malice and ill intent towards us. The other figure looked even more horrifying. It resembled a tall reptilian creature with red eyes and yellow slits in them. It had a malice and ill intent towards us, which, to my understanding, dwarfed that of the tall greys. John, I think we need to go back, Jane said, and I agreed with her. We began to fly away, but Jack was still there, remaining stationary, while appearing to be in shock and horror. Jack, what are you doing? We gotta get out of here, I yelled. Jack then snapped out of it and looked to our attention. He started heading towards our location but at that moment, the pyramid-shaped craft emitted a powerful white light from its center. We all looked at it and I felt this intense sensation of love and comfort coming from that light. It drew the attention of my two colleagues as well as I, but then I remembered who was piloting the crafts and the malice and the ill intent they gave off. I snapped out of it, but Jane and Jack were heading towards the craft. Jane, stop! That's a trick! I yelled. That's when Jane turned my attention and suddenly snapped out of it after hearing my voice. Jack, on the other hand, was still being drawn into the light. Jack, stop! I yelled out, but he didn't listen. As he got closer and closer, Jack went after him to try and pull him away. And that's when the light on the craft got much stronger and brighter drawing Jane's attention once again. A sudden thought burst into my mind upon looking at this. The entity that I had previously met knew about this craft and I understood why she was fearful. That craft is obviously a trapping mechanism for souls and from further knowledge I gained from her. Souls were being kept inside as small containers inside those ships and they were used as nothing more than batteries. She was warned about the beings operating the crafts and they said to have ill intent towards others, including us. After becoming aware of this, I yelled to Jane and Jack. Only this time, Jane wasn't responding, as the light and the effects that it had on them were much stronger. As they got to the end, the light then shut off, revealing an opening within the craft where Jack and Jane went in. Shortly after, I could sense that Jack and Jane finally snap out of it, only to be too late, I could then sense that they were being forcibly taken by other beings inside the craft, and they were forced to undergo a powerful shock treatment that affects their souls. This treatment was capable of wiping their minds clean of previous experiences, causing permanent amnesia. As that wasn't horrifying enough, the beings piloting the craft, they turned their attention towards me. I began to worry and take off as fast as I can, only to be chased down by the craft that was coming at me much quicker. Just as I thought that I would get caught next, I suddenly felt myself being pulled back to my body in a mere instant. And just like that, I suddenly woke up back on the bed. The scientists were happy to see that I was awake, but they appeared to be having trouble on bringing back Jack and Jane. I looked at their bodies and I began to sob. The scientists had no idea what had happened, but I knew the truth. Jack and Jane were gone. "'They're dead,' I said in a crying mass. "'What? How? Did the prototypes fail?' One scientist then asked anxiously, "'No, they were taken by those evil creatures.' I said out of anger, but they didn't believe me. They simply assumed that I was suffering from mass hysteria. "'I'm telling you the truth.' Jack and Jane are gone for good, I sat out of rage. That's enough, said one of my superiors. Come with us to the debriefing room. He then instructed me. In the room, I told them everything that we had seen and experienced. I even told them of the craft that took both Jack and Jane. All of the experiences that occurred, especially my meeting with the Nordic entity and those evil things. All except one of my superiors walked out of the debriefing room without saying a word. I suppose none of them believed a word that I said. That was until the remaining superior held up a folder and put it in front of me. Open it, he said. I did and as I did that it had pictures. I felt my heart pound rapidly for the first time. They were pictures of the same craft, the one that was piloted by those creatures, and it's clear that they were taken by a camera, capable of seeing things that we simply can't see with the naked eye. They come to our world from time to time," he said, and I listened in. We had no idea why they're here, but it seems your description of the craft matched the one that we had in the pictures. I figured that you would encounter them, which is why I brought these pictures, and now we know its purpose. It shocked me to realize that our military somehow knew about them and the fact that we were put into experimentation through this, it made my blood boil. You mean to tell me that we participated in this experiment just so you could get an idea of what that craft was for? Did you consider any repercussions about this? Seriously, what the heck is going on? I asked in a mix of frustration and confusion. He then sighed and told me everything. It was not your initiative to go into space and encounter those crafts. Your mission was clear to investigate on this world what the existence is like in the afterlife. After being informed of everything you told us, this seems to explain why most crafts belong to other beings don't operate in the same physical reality as us, but they do manifest into our world on occasion. I find it strange and defiant of all scientific and logical explanations, but I suppose the existence works in ways that we still have yet to understand. With that being said, this also managed to provide knowledge on those pyramid-shaped crafts that we were keeping an eye on. One of our previous test dummies decided to test out the prototype, and he got a glimpse of the afterlife, providing us with similar details of your experiences. But unfortunately, the poor soul came back to us, shaken with fear. He described the same exact thing that you told us, and your knowledge of them confirmed to us that they're extremely hostile. He refused to undergo another experiment and shortly became clinically insane, before being sent to an asylum to receive treatment. So it was then decided to find new subjects, that being you three. So I was nothing more than a lab rat, forced to endure the most likely risk that I would get caught by that craft and never come back. Is that it? I said. As I said, it was not your initiative. I suppose when we continue with the experiments, our priority is to inform future participants to not go into space and to avoid those specific crafts for their own safety. My superior then told me before he walked out, leaving me in the room by myself with my own thoughts. I admit I was pissed off, even though it wasn't really my mission to investigate the craft. The fact that they knew about it without telling us it made me angry. What made it worse was knowing that Jack and Jane are not gone due to this, and as I said, I blame myself for it. Those evil creatures, I hope that one day they pay for their transgressions upon humanity and other beings. But for now, I'm left with nothing but sadness, heartbreak, and my sanity severely damaged from the horrifying experience. The only bright thing about this ordeal is that Jack and Jane are commemorated for their bravery, and Jane's family have been properly compensated. To be honest, that compensation won't fix the fact that she's completely gone for good never able to see her husband and children ever again. So here I am five years later retired, but still traumatized from that experience, stuck with nothing but wishful thinking that Jane and Jack had managed to escape that craft, saved by other beings or if God had smite those monsters for their actions. I now believe that Hades isn't exactly a specific place or realm, nor a place filled with brimstone and fire but something which also surrounds us, even throughout space. I'm not sure what will happen to me when I die, because now for the first time in my life, I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of the possibility that I will be next. I even fear for my wife and children of this since none of them believe me. They thought that I had gone insane, but I know what I saw. I pray to God that he provides me and my family a safe passage into heaven once my time finally arrives. But sometimes I can't help but think that those creatures are sitting above my house unseen, waiting for me to die, and then to claim me next. There are creatures in Northern Ontario, creatures that kill, written by Marcus Starr. I was heading back into town with my buddy Joe after spending the weekend out on a frozen lake, ice fishing and drinking beer. The fish were really biting too. Joe's SUV was stuffed to the gills with walleye and smallmouth bass. The northerly town of Kapuskasing was buried under a mountain of snow, the worst snowfall since the winter of 97. I've lived my entire life in northern Ontario, so I've seen my fair share of snow, but nothing like this. But you learn to expect the unexpected in Northern Ontario. We were heading over a steep incline, enjoying a generous backdrop of pine trees painted in freshly fallen snow when tragedy struck. We watched as two police helicopters landed on the small slice of highway, causing the trickles of traffic to grind to a halt. Not a good sign. This highway was the only road home. We later learned that a newlywed couple had collided with a transport truck, killing both the husband and wife. We were forced to turn around and head back over the hill, where we found ourselves driving through a modest, sized hamlet consisting of a one-stop sign, a gas station motel restaurant, plus a smattering of wartime houses. Except all you could see was the pointed rooftops. The houses were completely submerged in snow, it was an incredible sight, something that you can only see this far up north, and even and this was rare. Joe didn't want to stick around, waiting a good 12 hours for the road to clear. He had a wife and kids to get home to, so we pulled over, wondering what our next move should be. Joe had that look in his eye, the look he gets when he's about to do something dangerous or stupid, or both. I know this look well. Hang tight, he said, and hold on. We turned out to a crude version of a road, the kind designated for snowmobiles with a stopside standing a mere three feet tall. The road was extremely narrow, snowbanks as high as trees were towering over us, like large, looming walls of white. If anything were to approach, we would have nowhere to go. There wasn't enough room to turn around, and I was becoming increasingly uneasy. This is how people get hurt, or worse. Are you sure this is safe? I asked, hating the sound of my voice. Joe ignored me or simply didn't hear me. He was busy white-knuckling the minivan through the snow tunnel trail, the glare of the setting sun blinding us the entire time. We drove for 15 minutes, knifing our way along the icy road, which was bumpier than a wooden roller coaster. It was obvious that we shouldn't be here, The impending darkness didn't improve my mood one bit either. I had a bad feeling about this. Joe stopped the van. What's up? I asked, not trusting the look on his face. Joe didn't answer. I could see his mind at work, assessing the direness of our situation. I've got to turn this thing around somehow, he finally said. I couldn't see how this was even possible, as we were sandwiched between two colossal snowbanks Something flickered inside Joe's dark eyes. What's that up ahead? He asked, flashing on the high beams. I think it's a road. It was. We edged a bit further, stopping at this makeshift road. There were no signs of road markings to be seen, nothing. In fact, this road looked worse than the one that we were on. Let's see where it goes, Joe said, cranking the wheel. As the minivan lumbered down the unmarked road, an ominous feeling swept over me. It was impossible to ignore. We were in trouble, and there was no denying that we were completely off the grid. Not even Google Maps could save us. There was only one way to go, and that was straight. The road was leading us into the dark of the forest, and when you're this far north, that's never a good idea. Especially at night, and that's when the wolves come out. It was looking to be a moonless night, which didn't help us one bit. Joe's hands were quivering as he clenched the wheel, keeping us from skidding into the towering snowbank. He kept assuring me that we would be alright, but I've heard that one before. Joe slammed on the brakes. You see that? He pointed. Over there. I squinted my eyes. Look, he said. Fire. Fire. Deep into the forest, I spotted a small, flickering flame dancing blue and orange and yellow and wild, probably a campfire. Just then, a strange and disturbing sound crackled through the night like a howling wolf. You hear that? he asked. The animal cried out again. It was the loneliest yowl that I had ever heard. There he goes again. It sounded like a wolf, except it didn't sound like any wolf that I had heard before, and I had heard plenty Whatever it was, it was dangerously close. Wolf, I said nervously, but not believing it. But as soon as those words left my mouth, a pair of glowing red eyes appeared out of nowhere. Joe stopped the car and killed the lights. Be still, he said. And I did just that. I sat motionless beside him in the car, but my hands were shaking. Those laser red eyes were approaching at an impossible speed. ''Reach back and grab the gun,'' Joe whispered. ''I tried, but it was out of reach.'' They were on his side, closer to the back. Those glowing eyes flashed on and off, and for a moment, everything was still. Then, from out of nowhere, the beast lunged onto the hood of the van. We both screamed in unison. The thing was huge, unlike any animal I'd ever seen. It looked like an overgrown German shepherd, except it was standing on its hind legs like a human.'' It was snarling at us, making ungodly noises, thrashing about. The creature was long and gangly, frothing at the mouth and clearly rabid. Dog man, Joe said, clearly astonished. I don't believe it. Joe gunned it, looking to run the thing over and speed away, but the wheels were caught on ice. Without warning, the beast leapt off the hood and started scratching at my door, its claws like daggers tearing the door from its hinges. It smashed through the windshield, shattering into a million pieces. With its dog-like face twisted in rage, the thing took a swipe at me. Its long toothy claws just inches from ripping my eyeballs from their sockets. The SUV shook, spilling the cooler of dead fish. The smell was atrocious. The dogman disagreed, and before it could rip apart my throat with its curvy claws, the creature turned from me and trampled to the back of the van where it devoured the fish in seconds flat. Its muzzle turned to blood red. Watching it lick the fish guts from its paws was sickening. This isn't how I wanted to die. The dogman's razor-sharp teeth were on full display. The insidious brute seemed guaranteed to kill us both. We were in fact the main course. It took a tentative step towards us, licking its filthy face. I gave Joe a look that said, nice knowing you pal, when out of nowhere came an ear ringing blast, striking the creature in the shoulder. The thing screamed in protest, and then came another shot, hitting the beast square in the chest. Blood spilled like wine across the interior of the SUV. Someone's shooting at it, Joe proclaimed. Three more shots rang out. The creature snarled, wiped the fleshy cartilage from its bloodied face, and then attacked. Another bang. Another bang. This shot went wide, but it was enough to send the beast scurrying back into the woods. Holy heck, Joe said in a shaky voice. Without a second thought, he pulled his seat back as far as it could go, and then shimmied his way into the back of the van and grabbed the gun. We're gonna need this. All of a sudden, it was freezing. With the vehicle off and the windshield busted in, it was an igloo inside the van. It's getting cold in here, eh? I said, shaking uncontrollably. A large plume of steam escaped from my face as I spoke. I was in shock. I had no idea what that thing was but it dang near killed me. The scene inside of the minivan was that out of a horror movie and the smell was even worse. I tried opening the door but it wouldn't budge. Joe tried his door with the same result. We were stuck. I would slice myself to shreds before I got halfway through my windshield. Joe's door had a bullet hole where the handle should be we would have to escape through the back blood and guts and fish bones and all it was rough but we did it once outside i scanned the area searching for that dog creature that almost got us but it had vanished joe's shotgun was aimed at a speck of light approaching from straight ahead a car within minutes we were greeted by a volkswagen microbus it stopped directly in front of us the driver got out and ran toward us carrying a sniper rifle, wearing a belt of ammunition. He spoke fast and with purpose, at checking his surroundings while doing so. You saw it. You did, didn't you? Excellent. Which way did it go, by the way? This guy made Clint Eastwood look like a boy scout. I honestly thought that he was going to kill us. He frowned as he surveyed the scene and then he shrugged. I suppose you'll be needing my help. He ran to the bus and opened up the hatch. "'exposing an array of military-style weapons "'to the likes that I had only seen in the movies. "'Holy crap,' Joe said, clearly impressed. "'I remained quiet, "'unsure what to make of this heavily-armed, red-headed stranger "'who literally just appeared out of nowhere to save our lives. "'But there seemed to be no other choice. "'Whoever he was, he drove us back to his cottage, "'regaling us with the history of this dogman creature. "'He told us some pretty tall tales.' His name was Patrick. Apparently, he's a dogman hunter. He says that he's never captured one but claims to have seen four or five, wounding two of them. Pesky things, he says. Hard to kill. He had been hunting the one that attacked us for weeks. Apparently, it's been eating deer and coyotes, as well as regular cats and dogs all winter long, leaving their salvaged remains scattered along the sides of the road and in people's backyards the locals were starting to panic. Joe and I texted home and then we stayed up all night talking about Dogman. I was having a hard time coming to grips with all this, seeing as how I almost died at the hands of one of them. Joe on the other hand was enthralled. The next day we drove back to the SUV to inspect the damage. When we had arrived, the van was completely dismantled and destroyed. It lay in ruins. Everything inside it had been ravaged and plundered. This isn't it, Patrick said. There must be an explanation. We scanned the surrounding area for over an hour and came up empty-handed. A fresh blanket of snow had fallen overnight, making track finding next to impossible. The disappointment on Patrick's face was palpable. Reluctantly, we hopped into his microbus and he drove us home with our tails between our legs where we had arrived at daylight in short, one SUV. We stayed in touch with Patrick going forward. Joe, coming from a long lineage of seasoned hunters, was intrigued by this dogman creature. Naturally, I was skeptical. I'm fairly certain that beast meant to eat me. The last thing that I wanted to do was volunteer to go searching for it. Yet unbeknownst to me, this was the making of a team of hunters. Dogman hunters. Still, amidst all the excitement, a feeling of trepidation had stolen over me. There was a lesson to be learned from all this. A lesson lost on my gun-toting counterparts. Some roads are best untraveled, especially in northern Ontario, where anything can happen, and it usually dies. Many months had passed since I was nearly pulverized by the creature in the woods. I was with my buddy Joe when it had happened up in northern Ontario, We had gotten ourselves lost in the dark of the forest, where monsters are known to prowl in the shadows of towering trees. Up here, monsters exist. Ultimately, it was Patrick who had saved us. Patrick had been tracking the thing for weeks prior to saving our hides. According to him, the creature is a result of a top-secret government experiment dating back to the 1940s. He claims that there are others, but none as dangerous as Dogman. We searched high and low for the creature in the woods, but to no avail. By the end of March, our band of dogman hunters grew weary. Surely the beast was dead. The northerly town of Kapuskasing enjoyed a brief period of normality. No more missing kittens, no more beaten up animal carcasses discarded in people's yards are left on the side of the road for the crows to pick apart. Life moved on and people forgot. Unfortunately, we did too, we let our guard down, and it cost us big time. We had become fast friends, hanging out at Patrick's cabin by the lake was a nice pastime on long weekends. Last weekend was no different, except of course that it was different, it was a complete catastrophe. Go grab some firewood, Patrick said, in his thick accent. Him and Joe were huddled by the campfire warming their hands over the flickering flames, drinking beer. The evening was cold and breezy. The grass was wet from the previous night's rainfall. The moon hung like a bowling ball, big and round and full of holes. I forced myself off the patio chair and went in search of firewood. Behind the cabin, nearing the rim of the forest, I caught a whiff of something foul. A mixture of grease and wet fur. I gagged, figuring that it was a bear I picked up the pace. The last thing that I wanted was to be barefoot. Something shot through the dense woodland. A stone's throw from where I was standing, making my hair stand on end. And then it released a desperate howl. The sound filled me with dread. That's no bear. I scanned the vicinity, cursing myself for not bringing a flashlight. All I could see was lake and forest. The feeling that I was being watched was impossible to ignore. Twig snapped, I spun around like a superhero. Two laser red eyes were peering at me through the thick of the brush. Dog man. I scampered back to camp like a scared puppy. Patrick was yammering on and out about his precious Habs, and while they'll do better next year, he was furious. Never mess with a French-Canadian when it comes to hockey, especially when you're dealing with the Montreal Canadiens. Guys, I said, dropping the wood in front of the fire. Patrick ignored me. I tried my luck with Joe. Joe, I cried. Something's out there. That caught their attention. In this part of the world, when someone utters that phrase, you would better take notice. Joe and Patrick sat upright. Before I could get another word in, the creature in the woods howled. The sound ricocheted off the frigid lake like a fresh breeze. It sounded close. Ah, crap, Patrick slurred his face twisted in torment. This is a man who prides himself on being prepared, which none of us were at that moment. Joe, he snapped. Go grab the guns. Joe stood up abruptly. The lawn chair stuck to his backside like something out of a Winnie the Pooh movie. He stumbled and fell face first onto of the soggy ground. Not a shining moment. Patrick cursed in French. Fine, I'll do it myself, he said and hurried towards his heavily armored microbe Something growled deep and guttural. Joe shot me a look that said, let's go, and we raced to the safety of the cabin, slamming the door behind us. Patrick better hurry, Joe said gasping for air. His face looked like milk. We scooted to the window which overlooked the driveway, and Patrick was fumbling for his keys, trying to unlock the hatch. He dropped the keys. One could imagine the cocktail of cuss words coming from his mouth at that moment. Nobody swears like the French. Our beating hearts sounded like bombs in the otherwise dead silent cabin. Our eyes were glued to Patrick, who had retrieved his precious car keys. As Patrick was opening the trunk, something lunged in front of the cabin window. We both screamed in unison: Dogman! The beast was hideous, and it scowled at us through the frosted glass, exposing an artillery of jagged white teeth. Its muzzle drenched in drool, it stood on its muscular hind legs, flexing its gangly jaws inches from our faces. I gasped. This was the dogman that nearly tore me to shreds a few months earlier. The door handle turned as the creature clawed at the cabin door trying to get inside. The beast roared, sending shivers down my spine, and then it crashed into the door. Once again, my life flashed before my eyes. The creature in the woods had come back and now it was going to finish me off. Shots rang out, sounding like a million volts of thunder. Joe and I dropped to the floor and ate dust. Outside, Patrick was whooping and hollering and cussing in French. Joe stood up and peeked outside. The look that he gave me wasn't encouraging. More shots were fired. I shot to my feet like a firecracker. Patrick's infamous Chuck Norris grin was plastered across his freckled face. In his hands was a semi-automatic rifle. The dog-like creature jumped on top of the microbus, screaming in protest. Before Patrick could even take aim, the beast flew off the van and tackled him to the ground. No, I cried out. Terror enveloped me. My hands were shaking and my legs were butter. Joe grabbed the 12-gauge shotgun off the wall. He cocked it and then using the butt of the weapon, he smashed through the window and pointed the weapon. Dang it, he said. I can't get a line in the thing. Meanwhile, Patrick was being mauled. The menacing mud had him pinned to the ground and was tearing him to shreds. The creature's face was a mess. Its claws clenched around Patrick's neck, squeezing the life out of him. Patrick, reaching desperately for his weapon, was covered head to toe in scratches. Fury found me. If this creature thinks that it can feast on my friend, it's got another thing coming. I found a Smith & Wesson lying on top of Patrick's dresser. It would have to do. I opened the cabin door, took aim, and fired. Bam, the creature collapsed headfirst on top of Patrick, who quickly freed himself. He found a semi-automatic and went berserk. Joe and I stood transfixed as a bouquet of bullets pulverized the dog man. Blooding guts and entrails exploded from its chest, like spaghetti hitting a fan, covering the beast head to toe. The creature shrieked. Its crimson teeth glistened under the pale moonlight. It took a tentative step back and wiped the blood from its muzzle and then attacked. With one quick swipe, the beast tore off Patrick's left arm. Pat, Joe proclaimed. Joe rushed outside and shot the creature in the back, Patrick fell from its grip like a sack of stones. The beast was caked in red. It lifted Joe and it charged, and Joe flew into the cabin at first, making it just in the nick of time. The cabin door groaned as the beast slammed into it. The door was on its last legs. Patrick was crying for help. We gotta save him, I said, in between bouts of hysteria. Joe was trembling. He had nearly been dog-man food, I know the feeling. The animal was clawing at the door, grunting. The freezer, I said. Of course, Joe said, reading my mind. Dogs like food, especially meat. Something that this cabin has plenty of. I found a pack of frozen moose steaks from the freezer. The creature was crouched over Patrick ready to finish him off. I whistled, stealing its attention, and then tossed the meat out the door. The beast started sniffing the offering. Its tongue was dripping with blood. Patrick's blood. The dogman raised its ugly head, and then it attacked the stakes like a hungry bear. Meanwhile, Patrick's intestines spilled across his sweater, and his lifeless body lay on sodden soil, next to an arm that moments ago had belonged to him. The monster was gnawing away in the frozen flash, grunting and groaning, and the sound was sickening. Joe cocked and fired, and the shot went wide. Dang it, he said, shaking his head in dismay. The dog creature dropped the meat and looked at me with venom. I shot the thing square between its eyes. Red exploded from the beast's head in every direction. I fired again, hitting it in the leg. By now I was fuming, vengeance was mine. The creature had dropped to its knees, and fresh red ran down its face. My eyes darted towards Patrick, who was barely hanging on by a thread. Miraculously, he had managed to prop himself up against the back of the van. He was panting. Blood was pouring out of him like wet paint. The creature cried out, sending a wave of chills down my spine. Something called back, and then another. There were others. There must be more of them, I said, barely recognizing the sound of my voice. The holly continued. A pack of dogmans filled the endless night with song. Joe came up behind me, his eyes told me everything that I needed to know. On three, he whispered. Joe counted. On three, the door swung open and Joe and I jumped outside, shooting the beast again and again, its body obliterated by the onslaught of ammunition. The dogman floundered but somehow held its ground, but finally as our attack persisted the creature retreated back into the thick of the forest leaving a trail of red and matted fur behind. Suddenly, the world went still. Patrick whimpered. He needs a doctor, I said, and fast. Joe called a 911 while I stood next to Patrick, holding his one and only hand. It was iceberg cold. He was leaking a tremendous amount of blood, and his eyes were barely open, his breathing shallow. Joe arrived with first aid. We tended to Patrick the best that we could, but his prospects weren't good. This far north, ambulances are not waiting around the corner. They don't come on a whim. It took about an hour before the helicopter arrived. Patrick was flown to the nearest hospital, and the cops had showed up soon thereafter with a boatload of questions. Apparently, they were acutely aware of this dogman creature, and they had been for quite some time. This didn't make me feel any better. The thing was still lurking in the forest, not far from where we were standing. Joe and I sat around the fire until the sun came up. There was no sleep for us that night and we tried to convince ourselves that Patrick would be fine. He's the toughest guy that we knew. If anybody could survive an attack of that magnitude, it would be him. Meanwhile, we kept a close eye on the edge of the forest, waiting for the creature from the woods to return. And Patrick called the following day. Sadly, the doctors couldn't save his arm, but they did save his life. He seemed in good spirits, but was heavily sedated and unable to talk for long. The weight of the world fell from our shoulders. I wouldn't worry too much about Patrick. Knowing him, he's plotting his revenge as I type this out. I certainly wouldn't put it past him. Word travels fast in the north. The town of Kapuskasing was once again placed on high alert. People prepared and there are creatures in the woods. Creatures that rip limbs from your body. Creatures that sink their teeth into your flesh and claw at your throat. And not just one. There are others. That said, there's only one monster on my mind as I finish typing this story. The creature who came back from the forest. Dogman. Summer went down faster than a cold beer in a warm night. Work stole most of my time. I miss my friends dearly. Since Patrick's incident resulted in him losing an arm to a seven-foot-tall, dog-like creature, we had gone our separate ways. The merry band of dogman hunters were no more. Joe, my lifelong friend, has spent the summer with his family. He works from home and took full advantage. By all accounts, his summer went swimmingly. Patrick, a foul-mouthed a French-Canadian who enjoys hunting with military-grade weapons, had his arm ripped off by a dogman creature earlier this year. I saw it happen. Needless to say, Patrick kept to himself all summer, recuperating from his life-threatening injury. To my surprise, Patrick called me the other day, and he had plenty to say. Turns out that he was dating his nurse, and her name was Cindy. She had heard all about me and Joe and our adventures as dogman hunters, and was eager to finally meet us in person. Thus, Joe and I were invited to spend the weekend at his cabin, Beers and barbecues and good fishing, just like the old times. I happily agreed, but my stress level was at an all time high. I needed to get away, and to my amazement, Joe also agreed. You see, after our second brush with death, Joe was forbidden to see me or Patrick again. His wife had told him so. For his own safety, she had said, and for the safety of their children. That said, Joe's wife was taking the kids to see their grandparents for the weekend. What she didn't know wouldn't hurt her, right? Right. We loaded Joe's SUV with beer and fresh meat. We spoke nonsensically about the grisly details of our previous trip to Patrick's cabin by the lake. The drive was treacherous. In the backwash of Northern Ontario, one wrong turn could cost you your life. Patrick greeted us with an open arm. His ruggedly handsome face exuded confidence. He introduced us to Cindy, and to my amazement, she wore camouflage than he did. She looked as tough as rawhide. Her t-shirt said, Guns don't kill people, I do. It was mid-afternoon, and a cool breeze was wafting off the lake. The sky was a sea of blue, the leaves turning orange and candy apple red. Soon the four of us were sitting by the lake, sipping ice cold beer and telling stories. Patrick was trying his darndest to conceal this excitement. He's a proud man, but he was happy to have the gang back together. Cindy was full of questions. And Pat tells me you boys hunt dogman creatures. Joe spit out his beer and he shifted in his seat but remained silent. I gave a wary thumbs up, having nearly been pulverized by the creature in the woods. I don't broach the subject lately. And before she could get another word in, Patrick spoke up. Hey, come have a look at this, he said, grinning ear to ear. He led us into the cabin, which was cluttered with weapons and traps and concoctions that I had never seen before. I'm no gun expert, but I knew those weapons were illegal. Hey, look there, Patrick pointed to the corner of the room, and I shrieked. I did it, Patrick boasted. We did it, Cindy said elbowing him playfully in the ribs. Next to the handmade coffee table standing a good seven feet tall was the creature that had ripped Patrick's left arm off. The dog man stuffed like a Thanksgiving dog. Its lifeless eyes followed my every move. Its razor sharp claws were a cruel reminder of how close I came to becoming dog man food. Patrick was beaming. Got the son of a gun last week. You should have seen it, Cindy said holding Patrick's hand. It was great. Patrick made me touch its matted fur. It took incredible willpower not to soil myself. We retreated to the lake. All the while Patrick and Cindy regaled us with their latest adventure. The story of how they captured and killed an actual dogman. Yeah, we set up cameras around the cabin, Cindy told us. Well we had to, Patrick interrupted. The thing wouldn't leave us alone. Joe tossed me a beer. Check this out. Patrick held up a noose, and it was ugly as the dogman creature standing in the living room. He killed him with it. Of course, Joe said, cracking open a fresh can. He was on the edge of his seat because Joe loves to hunt. It's in his DNA. He comes from a lineage of skilled hunters. In fact, he could skin a bear faster than you can say dogman hunters. Patrick filled us in. They had set up traps around the cabin. Last week, while sleeping, they were startled by a terrible noise coming from outside. The dogman. Patrick had grabbed his sawd off and peeked outside, and sure enough, the creature was creeping around the yard, going through the garbage. With the gun mounted to his one and only arm, he went out after it, and meanwhile, Cindy snuck around back. The dogman approached Patrick, looking to finish him off once and for all, and Cindy approached from the rear, carrying a bucket full of deer meat. She whistled and the creature turned and charged. Cindy dropped the meat into the center of the trap which lay on the ground attached to a tree. As the brute wrapped its eager claws around the stake, the trap sprung to life. The beast was swooped into the air, entangled in thick mesh, dangling violently from a tree. The beast growled and groaned, kicking and clawing and trying desperately to escape. Patrick approached without caution. This was the moment that he had been dreaming of long before losing his limb. He had been trying to capture this creature for years and he finally did it. With the help of Cindy, of course. Beat the thing black and blue, Cindy snickered. And then we wrapped that noose around its ugly head, Patrick interrupted. Snapped it like a twig, Cindy added. And it died right before our eyes. Sure did, Cindy smiled. Patrick and Cindy were sitting side by side, staring lovingly into each other's eyes. To them, this was romance. I cringed and my appetite was gone. How did I get talked into this? I looked to Joe for support and found none. Joe was enthralled. Once he gets excited about something, no one, not even his beautiful wife and loving family, can discourage him. The beer flowed like wine. By dinner, we had heard the story more times than I had seen Blade Hunter. Patrick swore us to secrecy. Word travels fast up North. As Cindy fired up the barbecue, and soon our bellies were full of burgers, baked potatoes, and garden fresh greens. Trouble arrived at sunset. Joe and I insisted on cleaning up, and I did the dishes, and Joe put everything away. When we returned outside, the fire was roaring. The sun was sinking low and the night was chilly, so we wrapped ourselves in a flannel and warm blankets. As Patrick began telling his story yet again, an ominous cry crashed through the night. It was the loneliest sound that I had ever heard. And then came another from across the lake. Dogman, Patrick said, through clenched teeth. Two of them. He nodded to Cindy who scooted inside the cabin and returned with weapons. When she dropped a semi-automatic onto my lap, I flew from my seat like a firecracker Unlike my gun-toting companions, I don't do semi-automatics. Patrick cursed me, and Cindy nodded disapprovingly and then gave me a handgun. It looked as small as a flea. Joe gladly accepted his firearm and checked to see if it was loaded. It was, meanwhile the cooler remained heavily stocked and the campfire raged on, providing some much-needed light. The curious cries continued like a symphony of lonesome laments. The solitary glow of the crescent moon filled me with discontent. I shivered. The sounds were getting closer and something was growling from the edge of the woods. I turned. A pair of bloodshot eyes were peering at me. Get inside, Cindy ordered. Joe and I stared stupidly at one another. Now. We went and the cabin greeted us like a mischief of rats. We scurried to the window and, without warning, a large dog-like creature lunged in front of us, bearing its teeth. Its snout was thick with foam and its claws were crashing through the window with one strong swipe. A deafening shot rang out. We hit the floor and everything went dark. My ears were ringing, my mind in disarray. Globs of blood dripped onto the floor like wet paint. Dog man blood and I gagged. Joe jumped to his feet. Over here, he whispered. Joe crouched next to the door, rifle in hand and shaking. Patrick whooped and hollered, calling the dogman every name in the book and then some. A crowd of creatures responded. Their gristly growls echoed off the lake for miles. How many of them are there? Joe gasped, peeking at the door. I shrugged. Honestly, I didn't want to know. We were in the middle of nowhere and out here there were no neighbors, no one to rescue us, and we were on our own. Joe gave me a nod before rushing outside, weapon first. No, Patrick spat. Joe was ambushed and the pack of creatures had him surrounded. Patrick shot one in the back and the beast bellowed, releasing a blood-curdling cry that made my skin crawl. I hurried outside and darkness devoured me. The flickering fire was now a smoldering speck of soot. The fingernail moon had vanished and the sky was darker than death. Meanwhile, Patrick was perched in a tree, blanketing the beast with bullets. Joe wailed in agony as the mangy mutts mauled him. Shots were fired. Get out of the way, Cindy shouted, and she was close, but I couldn't see her. Footsteps approached. I swung around. A dogman was charging. Its breathing sounded like a sputtering motorcycle. I jumped inside the cabin just in time. There's four of them, Patrick shouted. One of them has Joe. My courage was floundering, but I soldiered on. I aimed my lowly handgun outside the shattered window. The beast had Joe in its grip. Without hesitating, I squeezed the trigger. I hit the thing in the shoulder and at the same time Patrick fired, blowing a hole in its hind leg. The beast buckled. Joe sprang to his feet and fired point blank, hitting his assailant right between the eyes. Blood and brain exploded, covering him head to toe. Cindy came charging and she scooped Joe into her muscular arms and then retreated to the shed, barely avoiding the wrath of the menacing monster trailing close behind. "'Listen up,' Patrick shouted from the treetop. "'When I give the word, go to the shed.' Again, I scorned myself for being here. Apparently spending a relaxing weekend with my pals was too much to ask. "'Now,' my eyes focused on the shed, a stone's throw from the cabin. "'I said now,' Patrick's voice slapped me in the face I ran, gunning it toward the shed, screaming my head off The race was on Creatures were nipping at my heels and I twisted and turned, nearly avoiding their grasp Cindy was egging me on, shouting, go, go, go And I ran as fast as I could, but it wasn't quick enough One of them grabbed my shoulder, digging its claws deep into my flesh I pried it off me and then dove headfirst into the shed The door slammed behind me the creatures had crashed into the shed. and They were relentless in the rebuttal. The rickety door was all that separated us and it was taken a beating. The door belched as the beasts had banged into it again and again. We were trapped. My shoulder was a mess and my bloodstained sweater torn to shreds. Cindy quickly patched up my wounds and the pain was egregious. Ah, you'll be fine, she snapped. Just hold still. And I did. Cindy bandaged my wound using a dusty rag and then she found her phone and started punching keys. Her determination was remarkable. She was like the woman from the Terminator movies, only French. Someone touched my shoulder and I screamed in agony. Joe looked haggard, far worse than me. Blood and bruises and scratches galore. But his wounds were deep. His water bucket eyes barely open. Clearly, he needed a doctor. This is it, old buddy. He managed to say, This is the end. My heart sank and I had known Joe my entire life. We had been best friends for as long as I can remember and this isn't how it was supposed to end. Oh no, Cindy shook her head. Nobody dies on my watch. Her phone vibrated. Hang tight, she ordered. Gunshots rang like rockets and Patrick was going ballistic. Hey you flea bags, you want some of this? Cindy smiled and all at once she was beautiful. She then jumped outside and attacked, firing round after round, screaming bloody murder. Rifle blasts and curse words filled the dead of the night. I peeked outside and what I saw still haunts me. Patrick was luring the creatures into his cabin, mounds of meat carpeted the cabin floor. The beasts were like a pack of hyenas gorging in the feast. Meanwhile, Cindy was opening fire. Except she wasn't hitting them, she was aiming wide, avoiding the cabin. And then I noticed the makeshift box in Patrick's hand, silver and clunky with an antenna poking out of it. Cindy stopped firing as Patrick joined her. They shared a quick embrace and then Patrick pressed the red button. Kablam, the entire cabin was blown to smithereens. The sheer force of the blast sent me flying. The dogman creatures didn't know what hit them. The world went still and my body and mind shut down. I lay motionless for an undisclosed amount of time until the strong hand picked me up. You okay? Cindy asked. I was dazed and confused and unable to respond. I heard everywhere. You see that? Patrick bellowed, bobbing up and down. Woohoo! Cindy helped Joe into the microbus and he was rushed to the hospital. And when I say rushed, I use that term loosely. This far up north, a two-hour drive is considered a quick jaunt. When I went with them, Patrick stayed behind, keeping a close eye on the wreckage. Cindy boasted the entire trip. It turns out they had been preparing for this all summer. They simply forgot to inform us that Patrick's cabin was stuffed with explosives. The plan was to lure the creatures into the cabin and then blow them straight to bits. I didn't bother explaining how dangerous and stupid their plan was. I was too tired. And besides, their plan worked. My wounds were minor and I got off lucky. And Joe, not so lucky. The nurses asked plenty of questions, and Cindy was prepared for this. And bear attack, she said flatly. When all else fails, I'll blame the bears, and it worked. And Joe was stitched up and released the following week. Needless to say, his wife was not impressed. But fortunately, she's a forgiving woman, and Joe is doing everything possible to make it up to her. I think that'll be alright. They've been through this before, although I doubt I'll ever see him again. Patrick and Cindy moved to North Bay and they've opened an ammunition shop specializing in hunting extraordinary creatures. The store is called, Beast by the Bay. Patrick kept a dogman's head as a souvenir and proudly displayed it behind the counter. His tall tales loom large in his legend. For me, not much has changed. I went back to work Tuesday morning and nobody was the wiser. My workmates know nothing of my adventures as a dogman hunter. To them, I'm a quiet yet responsible worker, someone who shows up on time, keeps to himself and rarely complains. They didn't even notice my injuries. The northerly town of Kapuskasing has quieted down again. The random slaying of small animals has subsided, for now. The forecast is calling for snow by the end of the week and a long and arduous winter is expected. What will become of Dogman? Only time will tell. My guess is they'll migrate further north where they'll remain undetected for years. You see, these creatures adapt, they feed and they kill, and then they move on. May this story serve as a warning. If you're up in northern Ontario and see a creature in the woods run away as fast as you can, take it from somebody who knows. Up here, the creatures will tear you apart, limb by limb, and feast off your flesh. Their destruction knows no bounds. There are creatures in north Ontario... Creatures that kill. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. As always, wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.